Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? Cheers, Darren. I'm very well, <laughs> thanks. How are you? Much better now, it seems. I'm getting by. It's, it's been a long day, but such is life. It's been it's been a long day for several several months. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, it has. A one long continuous day for the better part of three and a half months at this point, I think. And it will never end. Anyway, so for the past couple of months of the podcast, we've been doing a range of a kind of a world tour of world cinema. We've been bringing the world to your ears. You've joined us on adventures that have taken us from 15th century Japan to the dystopian future of an alternate 2015 Canada. We've gone from the sterling skyscrapers of Hong Kong uh, through to the indistinct but vaguely green digital world of Barcelona. But now we're going to take you back to a season of American classics. And to help us do that, we invited on the wonderful Luke and Jess Dunn from the Breakout World podcast to discuss a movie that will hopefully help us glide into a season of classic of American cinema. It is Steven Spielberg's 2002 classic, Catch Me If You Can. Hi guys, how you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you for having us on. It's, uh, yeah, welcome both. It's especially timely for two reasons. First of all, myself and Jess have finally uh, resumed the, the Breakout Roll podcast. and uh, only took a pandemic. Our, our, our latest episode stars one of the, one of the, one of the stars of this, this particular film. Uh, and it should be available by the time that your episode goes live. Fingers crossed. Uh, and it's up. It's also timely because uh, this film made me really sad because it's about a guy flying all over the world and, and being allowed to go places, which I, I envy a lot at this moment. And crowds, going through crowds. Physical contact, which is actually one of the things I talk about. It's like one of the things about Hollywood is, yeah, it's like after the pandemic, how will you be able to portray people interacting? Will it be a situation where people will go, that looks unnatural. They're touching one another. They're within two meters. I'm already like this when I'm watching TV. I'm like, oh, they're near each other. Like, even if it's if they're in an elevator, you're like, yeah, like when when people when people walk into like my my personal space has has just gotten huge <laughs> because of the the pandemic now. And when people approach my like like one and a half meters of me. I start like going back as if they're as if they're like you know squaring up to me or something, <laughs> and they're like. Sorry, I think they call that pan spreading, eh? Uh, uh, <laughs> well, uh. I mean, like when I was still having events in early March, what people were doing to like professionals to greet each other was bumping elbows. So it's already starting yes. like the, people won't shake hands anymore. I I would just prefer for Hollywood productions or or, or or film productions in general just to not bring it up and just to kind of enter some kind of alternate timeline <laughs> or reality branches you mean like friends and 9-11 yeah yeah because like I, I know the, the people behind uh orange is the new black supposedly are developing like a a lockdown television program and it's like please just don't bother just I don't need what it. What was Ortiz going to be called again? Oh, uh, COVID Nation or whatever. 
Oh, it, it was something really long. It was like Operation COVID Nation or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like Operation Transformation. Yeah, it got backlash and now they've changed it and it doesn't actually seem to be coming out anymore. I haven't really heard much since. I would also like to uh, enter an alternate timeline where RTE just simply doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> or their programming is dramatically different, at least. I, I don't know. I think that there'll always be a market for viral content. Uh -huh. Darren. Oh, Darren's making fine. a face. <laughs> fine. Anyway, so yes. So as you as you guys alluded there, um, you guys will obviously be covering Leonardo DiCaprio's breakout role in the new Lassie TV show that aired in the early 90s. No, I think you guys are actually covering Tom Hanks, uh, his first big screen role, or his first central role, That's his first correct. starring role. We, we, we were going to do uh, Buzz and Buddies, his, his sitcom. Uh, <laughs> I think it's, it's too oh, yeah. unfortunately <laughs> unavailable and yeah it's very very much outdated uh, I just showed Jessica the opening credits of it instead I thought that was a fever dream to be quite honest dare I ask what the premise of Buzz and Buddies is it's like Mrs Doubtfire but it was they wanted to live in a women's shelter wasn't it it's two friends Tom Hanks and his pal they, they, they want to they want to rent, but they can't afford it. So they, they go to this um, like all women's uh, like apartment building, like they would have had like for universities and stuff in the olden times. And they dress as women, so it's it's, it's much cheaper. And uh, they, it it died a death. This is like a is, sitcom. Is this it, true, Jess? Is is it much cheaper to dress as a woman? No. <laughs> you don't have things like pockets falls apart. so you have to buy like a bag and then you can't like you have to match them to each so it's it's a it's a whole cat of frogs it, the sitcom died a death but it lives on as an adult swim sketch with um yeah with adam with scott, adam scott. yeah 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 um rip replicating it like shot for shot um but we we didn't end up watching that we we watched instead mazes and monsters which is a, a movie where tom hanks plays a dungeons and dragons knockoff and loses his mind and thinks that it's real it sounds like this fun kind of kooky tom hanks it's not at all it's so dark it's very dark side. It's, wow. it's very strange. It's like moral panic around D and D. So it's like, what if if some kind of conservative parents got to make a film about like evil rock music? Like this is what you get. I heard the first couple of minutes are pretty good, but then after that, it begins to drag on. Ah. Uh? Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, very good. It's great. Very good. Were you punning when you said, <laughs> when we said on Twitter we were co coming back to podcasting and you said, I can't wait to catch it. Was that? Yeah. That was sort of Catch it when I can. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was what I was doing there. Catch it when I can. Which is, it wasn't a particularly subtle one either. It just changed <laughs> one pronoun. Um, and okay, obviously a clause as well. But anyway, yes. So. Providing a nice segue into the movie that we're going to be covering today, Luke mentioned is it that the movie uh, we're covering today. It is the movie <laughs> the, we're covering today. Um, but the uh, that Luke mentioned there that uh, obviously the Bosom Buddies, the cross-dressing Tom Hanks sitcom, which was riding, I believe, off the success of Tootsie, which was an early '80s movie starring Dustin Hoffman. Funnily enough, Catch Me If You Can was in development so long 
that Dustin Hoffman was originally credited to play the Frank Ab- Abagnale role uh, when it was originally optioned in 1980. It had a very long, very story development life cycle. We'll maybe talk about some of that when we get to the spoiler zone. But it eventually kind of emerged uh, in the late, uh, sorry, in the early 2000s, uh, with Steven Spielberg directing, Leonardo DiCaprio starring. It's an interesting film in several respects because at the time, it was generally considered to be a minor Spielberg film, particularly arriving as it did in the midst of Spielberg's post 9-11 kind of phase, where he released, I think, seven movies in the space of four years, um, which is quite an impressive accomplishment for any director, but particularly a director working at that level. So he released AI, Artificial Intelligence, Minority Report, Cash Review Can, The Terminal, War of the Worlds, and Munich within a very tight space of time. And the general perception was that of those, Catch Me If You Can was one of the light and disposable ones. Ebert, in his initial review, described it as a minor trifling affair, not one of the great Spielberg films. Diana Margolis at the Los Angeles Times basically spent her entire review talking about how Spielberg had become a director too big to do a small film, which this was. And it's kind of interesting because... You know, um, in terms of the list, in terms of the movies that are on the list, this, chronologically speaking, is the last Steven Spielberg film to have made the 250. It is the only 21st century Steven Spielberg film to be on the 250. Minority Report was on and dropped off. um, And also, of all things, Indiana Jones, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. No, Munich never made it either. Munich was too polarizing, I think, as well. The Crystal Skull, there was enough of a consensus about that being good. At the time that it was released. That's not how I remember it. Okay. Yes. I think I remember those <laughs> times. I don't I don't remember things being that different. I love the idea <laughs> that the two fifty is gaslighting you. Um, Where like up and is down and yeah. I mean did what Okay, all right. <laughs> I accept that that happened. Um, it's just a bit strange. Yeah, but yeah, so Catch Me If You Can was, was released in Was that also a Spielberg movie? Um, Indiana Jones, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was, yes. Which is incredible. Um, I, 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 yeah. I, I, are, there, are there a lot of movies that Spielberg attaches his name to and doesn't have as much to do with, or, or, or is that um, slander? Yeah. Um, well, Spielberg is a notoriously uh, busy body. He has a very high energy and very low sort of attention span is typically how it tends to work. I mentioned there that he produced, he was incredibly productive during those early years of the 21st century. It's notable that when Catch Me If You Can came up, he was simultaneously also working on Big Fish, which would be developed as a Tim Burton film after he dropped his interest in, in it, and Memoirs of a Geisha, which he'd actually been chasing for the better part of three or four years. But he then just dropped that like a hot potato to work on Catch Me If You Can. Spielberg, yeah, does tend to work quite frequently as a producer or as an ideas man. He'll typically throw out ideas and those ideas will be developed by writers and either he'll lose interest in the project as it's going along or he'll pass it on to a protege or he'll decide that somebody else is the best person to kind of take hold of it, um, which yeah. is typically how that works. I think because Spielberg is so prolific as a producer as well, he does have a very strong tendency to, in the role of a producer, decide that the the most pertinent way to kind of move move a project along is for him to now be directing it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he does have a long history of just kind of dropping interest in in projects or companies or, <laughs> or kind of whole, um, whole ways of, of of advancing the medium, kind of uh, on a whim. Um, yeah. I mean. 
the 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 fact that he in that prolific period that you described, Darren, could easily have also directed two other <laughs> well-known <laughs> films of the early 2000s and just kind of like, you know, pass them off to, to, to other people. It kind of, it says a lot about his, uh, his yeah. work rate. Um, and actually, this is kind of interesting because Catch If You Can came out in 2002, which is comfortably within all of our lifespans. Do we remember seeing this? Did we see this when it first came out in cinemas? Um, did we wait until the home media? When did we discover this? And what did we initially think when we saw it for the first time? So Jess? I did not see it at the time. I remember posters and different things for it. I did not know that Spielberg was involved. I didn't know that Hanks was involved. Um, I just kind of, I don't know if it was just the time period and the fact that I'd be more interested in Leo DiCaprio at the time or what that might've been. But yeah, I didn't see it at the time. I just, I, w- I had an awareness of it. The poster is too blurry for you to see Tom Hanks. <laughs> Yeah, I th- one of the again, I've been browsing sort of letterbox and sort of doing research for this, and I do quite like that the top-rated letterbox review complains that the poster makes this look like a story, a gay love story about a twink and a dad who just connect <laughs> in a '60s corporate business world, and they felt very disappointed with the movie that they got. But Jess, when did you actually see it? So when do you remember when you actually got round to seeing it? If you didn't see it in cinemas when it was released, I only saw it for the first time for the purposes of the podcast. So last night is the first time I saw it. Oh wow. Wow! Yeah, nice coming out of fresh. Because this is this is one of those movies that um, I think in America anyway, it's something that's on. I think Frank Abagnale has said it's on HBO like constantly, like pretty much every week. But then <laughs> um, Frank Abagnale said that, so can you trust it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's pretending to be a producer. Um, yeah, they, they, like like it's um, it's surprising, I guess, because I I feel like this is a movie that I probably have seen um, a few times. I might have seen when it came out. I somebody somebody gave me a gift of the book, um, the, the 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 Catch Me If You Can book, which 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 is which is, which is quite a good book for 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 a young person, I think. Um, because it, it's it's like an adventure story, which is what this book is. Sorry, which is what this movie is, and it 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 also, I suppose, has a, um, some kind of details that weren't um, that weren't in the film that probably wouldn't have worked as well in the film. Um, that kind of add add a little bit to it as well. How about how how about yourself, Luke? Um, when 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 do you remember seeing this? I mean, it's funny. I don't have any particular strong. Like, I didn't see it in the cinema, but I don't have any particular one strong memory of of, of having watched it. I think it is one of those films, and a lot of Spielberg films are like this, where like I would have seen it on TV a lot. Like it would be like the Friday night film kind of a thing, or like we would have rented it or whatever, and just kind of. As you said, Darren, like at the time, it might have been seen as like disposable or, or kind of just kind of fleeting entertainment. Again, like a lot of Spielberg stuff. And it's just kind of over time and, and having watched it so many times that kind of I would have developed a, an appreciation for it. Because you kind of, the, the, more you watch, the more you watch this, the, the more you kind of, I suppose, pick up a, on kind of little things about it and kind of, kind of see layers to it and, and to, to the storytelling in it that that you wouldn't necessarily pick on up on on the first watch like 
It is, and it's, it's arguably aged remarkably well. Again, I, I mentioned I was watching this a couple of nights ago for the podcast and was overwhelmed by the kind of love that it got on there. It seems like it has actually aged much better than some of the other kind of bigger Spielberg films at the time. I remember Minority Report being a big release that summer. This came out in December. Notably as well, actually, this was supposed to open opposite Gangs of New York, um, although Weinstein moved Gangs of New York back a couple of weeks in order to avoid a DiCaprio versus DiCaprio Christmas showdown. Um, but it's kind of interesting that, yeah, this has become the Spielberg film that people have latched on to. It's become a kind of like an almost kind of generational thing. I don't know if you'd argue that it's his last truly great film, but it seems to be one that people have a lot of fondness and affection for. I think in the in the Spielberg um double bill if they had put them on like at the same time i suppose if if the schedule of the cinema would allow the way to watch that would be to see gangs of new york followed by catch me if you can right uh, um so you end on an upper is it yeah like our experience of of watching grave of the fireflies followed by Na- my neighbor totoro <laughs> yeah it was probably like quite... it, was, it was like taking drugs Yes. Uh, yes, it was. It's, it's great. That's a roller coaster. Yeah, I, I imagine that's the way to do it. Yeah, and and that is that is by the way, um, the opposite way of how they schedule the double feature of My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies. When they release it in cinemas, they showed Totoro first, which lulled everybody into a false sense of security, and apparently left everybody traumatized after Grave of the Fireflies. Um, but that's enough about that. But yeah, so very quickly then, before we talk about the how about you, Darren? Did the- did you say when you uh, seen it first? Was it an early kind of? It would have been uh, an early Spielberg film for me. I remember specifically when I saw Minority Report. And I remember because I didn't like Minority Report a great deal. And I remember being vaguely disillusioned in the way that a teenager... We saw it at Nerd Camp, Andrew. Yes, we yes, did. Yes, yeah. I was going to um, ask. We we saw it in, in Santry in, yes. uh, in, in Nerd Camp. That's right. Yes, uh, that was a shared experience with myself and Andrew. I remember did being Did we also crazy. watch um, Crocodile Dundee... Um, in in LA, <laughs> that feels like it might have predated me slightly. You know, I, I feel have. like I might yeah, have missed yeah. that one. Um, but they I remember being the full very auditorium. <laughs> we <laughs> oh, all watched it. What a time that was! <laughs> he was Crocodile Dundee, and he was in Los Angeles. Um, but yes, no. So I uh, I remember With seeing Mike Tyson. I, that, I'm sure that has aged absolutely beautifully. Um, but I, I remember seeing Minority Report. I remember being unimpressed with Minority Report, particularly given the reviews of it as well, and not particularly liking it. I remember maybe that was me being kind of a, a curmudgeon teenager and being like, that's not the Spielberg that I like. I like the sort of gentler, affectionate, <laughs> old-fashioned, old-times, the Americana. <laughs> yeah, the Dawson of Dawson's Creek school of movie criticism. So I remember when Catch Me If You Can came out, being instantly enamored with it and kind of falling in love with it, and having a kind of then having that kind of weird sensation that Luke's described, where I am fairly sure that I saw it in a cinema. Like I, I haven't missed a Spielberg film in a cinema since, um, at the very least, AI, if not earlier. But I also cannot remember a time when I felt like I hadn't seen this movie. Because it is, as Andrew described, almost always on television. I'm pretty sure I've seen it most Christmases when I've been at home flicking through TV channels, for example. I've probably seen it once or twice in a weekend when it's on Sky Movies and I just get stuck there. I opened up my letterbox and discovered I've apparently watched this film five times in the past two years, despite not having a clear recollection of any of those occasions. So it's kind of an interesting film in that respect, because it feels like it's kind of always been with me 
even if I don't have any clear cognizance kind of memory of it, uh, which is quite remarkable. And again, kind of speaks to the, the odd way in which it kind of crept up on people or kind of crept up on pop culture, where it's like, this is the great Spielberg film of the 21st century. Would we agree on that, by the way? Is this the best Spielberg film of the 21st century? Um, I think, and I had this all prepared, I, I finally had a good response prepared, Darren, for when you were going to ask me the three questions, which I always kind of answer in the laziest and most unenthusiastic way possible. But <laughs> that I, is I, the appropriate way to answer. I, I think the thing about <laughs> Catch Me If You Can is it, 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 it may not be Steven Spielberg's best film but that it's kind of it, it's kind of one of the hardest ones to to argue with because because Spielberg for for as successful as he is and for you know as as kind of acclaimed as he is he's always kind of had criticisms and kind of detractors you know about being you know either overly sentimental or about being kind of a kind of hackneyed populist, which he is, but, you know, uh, or, or, you know, with some of his more serious films about kind of wading into, to kind of subject matter that he's maybe not suited to, to, to kind of telling or, or using that subject matter to kind of tell very kind of flat or, 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 you know, award basic kind of stories. Uh, that I mean, that that criticism has been levied at kind of his best stuff, including Schindler's List. It's also been kind of levied at stuff like Amistad, and you know, where it's probably a bit fair. But but I think Catch Me if you, Catch Me If You Can kind of strikes this perfect balance of the kind of entertainer Spielberg, the entertainer, and and kind of Spielberg, the the kind of more serious storyteller. And I think it's it, it's one of his harder films to kind of detract from because it's. I think the the qualities that he brings to it, even if it's it's something that he kind of hopped onto, uh, like adds so much. It's it's kind of one of the harder films of his, I would say, to kind of take away from or or, or kind of uh, dismiss in a sense, you know. And and that's 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 one of the things that I think it, it is one of those films that improves over time. And it, and and it's like films like that in kind of acclaimed directors filmographies often end up kind of slowly but surely rising rising to the top yeah, yeah. because it's it's kind of just like a kind of the er example of of this director and what they do well kind of i think catch me if you can't covers a lot of the basis of what of what spielberg is is kind of best at yeah, and again, you, you mentioned the fact, the irony, that he kind of came onto this project kind of almost as an afterthought. And in fact, he's talked about how one of the reasons why he chose to make this film was nothing to do with the story matter or the thematic matter, the stuff we're going to get into that you would all associate with Spielberg. He, his actual quote is, I just wanted to make a fun film. He shot it in 55 days, 56 days, which is a remarkably quick turnaround for a movie that has 157 different locations. They'd apparently booked places to shoot for three days and found that they were shooting in an afternoon moving on and doing something else entirely. And it's kind of weird that, as you mentioned, it's it's yet somehow feels a perfect Spielberg film in terms of dealing with his themes, but also in terms of evolving those themes. And I suspect we'll talk about that when we get to the spoiler zone, because it feels almost like a culmination of kind of stuff that Spielberg's been working through, going back to, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is perhaps the best example, but throughout his work entirely. I mean, this is something that Frank Abagnale said, so, so I don't know, is it true or not? But 
he said that Spielberg told Barbara Walters that he he made it not because of um, um, what uh, Frank Abagnale uh, did as a child, but because of what he did afterwards. So that he he wanted to tell it kind of um, because of the redemption aspect of it. But that sounds just like something Frank <laughs> Abagnale said. <laughs> I don't know, is that true at all? That makes sense to me. I think Spielberg as a director often seems to be really interested in jobs and people's jobs and how they kind of get into them. Or that's what I would kind of take away from films like Jurassic Park. And I think it's part of his interest in like fathers and father figures. It's kind of a natural extension of that but I, I definitely can see that I can see why he would have that interest in it and why he would approach it from that angle and I think that there is something interesting in in what Andrew said there which will probably get into the spore zone which is how this relates to a certain amount of boomer nostalgia and kind of like an idea about how it deals with a, a generation of Americans who are you know kind of struggled through the 60s and again we're, you, you guys talked about Tom Hanks we're probably going to talk about Hanks as well and the way in which kind of Hanks and Spielberg have kind of made themselves custodian of the boomer memory of kind of America or even the mid-century memory of America and why I think perhaps and again something to, to put a pin in and talk about later why that redemption narrative would appeal to Spielberg um, in particular because it's very much a story about a kid who goes out, does some wild stuff, but it's okay. It all works out in the end. I can see why Spielberg, as a director working in 2002, you know, after 9-11, after the 90s, would be like, yeah, I want a story about a kid who went through a turbulent phase and it all worked out for him in the end. And I think Jess, Jess is very right about the dad stuff, because that's incidentally stuff that, that, that Spielberg added. You know, yeah. and we'll we'll I guess we'll 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 talk about it a bit more in the spoiler zone. But it, it's it's or I don't know whether it was Spielberg himself or whether it was the, the kind of uh, whoever was in charge of the screenplay or that. But yeah, that that it, there are Spielberg themes there that are uh, played out maybe in in ways that are different to to how um, they actually transpired. Um, I guess. Yeah. In the in the in the true story, and also different from how Spielberg had previously explored those themes. And again, there's probably some stuff you can tie into his personal life there. I think we're reaching the edge of what we can talk about without talking about spoilers. So, Luke, I hope you've got your answers ready. Uh, well, what I was just going to say before that was that, like, obviously there is kind of this strong boomer element to this film and and all Spielberg's films in general because I think he's the boomerist boomer of them all, in a sense. But it's I think it's interesting because I think a lot of people from that generation and kind of some of the generations that followed are kind of the people that uh, detract from Spielberg at, at times. I think people from kind of our generation often seem to be the ones that 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 have an appreciation for or or kind of a, a, a rosier image of Spielberg. And that's partly because he would have been so pervasive all the way through our childhood not just in his film but like every cartoon that i watched as a child was like tied to spielberg in some way looney tunes uh, um, or tiny tunes isn't it uh, yeah or like animaniac Animaniacs. Or, or, or or things like that and they not only kind of were pro executive produced by him and kind of had his image everywhere but they also talked about him constantly <laughs> 
<laughs> he played himself in several of them, as I recall, right? Yeah, all very good branding. But like the the kind of I think for people of our generation, the kind of some of the, the themes in this film about kind of lost innocence and this kind of like a child being thrust into an adult world and the kind of simultaneous arrested development and yet un- unpreparedness for for kind of adulthood uh i think that kind of resonates uh maybe, well, certainly with me <laughs> but i think with a lot of people kind of around our generation because the, uh, there's so much stuff in this film that, that kind of if there's if there's a point it kind of hammers home over and over again it's like that this is a literal child <laughs> doing these things it's i mean there are a lot of great con artist movies in in kind of throughout hollywood history but this is one that over and over again kind of goes back to the fact that this is a little boy <laughs> uh you know and a lot of spielberg's movies are about someone that's a little boy on the inside but it's like no no he's just this is a child <laughs> yeah um, there's literally you're a kid I think is is one line that's delivered towards the climax of the movie um, as if to drive that point home people are people our age it's a horrible an irritating term but they, they kind of complain about adulting a lot and the, the, like Frank right whole con it's not something that people. adults say <laughs> you know uh, like everything that he does is about adulting when he shouldn't uh, and you know yeah, um, I think somebody described Catch Me If You Can memorably as an adult, uh, sorry, a child's impression of what adulthood looks like, uh, which is probably a very good way of kind of putting it in that it's it's Frank Abagnale trying to pretend to be an adult in the way that he thinks that adults are. Yeah, and actually becoming an adult. Specifically because there are things about growing up and about being an adult that he doesn't want to kind of face or, or, or kind of admit or, or kind of uh, he wants to ignore or run away from those things. Particularly in how the film treats it and and how the plot kind of progresses and the kind of jumping off point for it. I I think you're right with that, yeah. All right, then. So before we jump into the spoiler zone, three questions to get us started. Um, So we'll go with Luke first. Luke, do you think that Catch Me If You Can belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Well, Darren. I know that every time you ask me this question, I, I not only refuse to answer, but I also imply that the very existence of the IMDb, IMDb top 250 list is uh, a threat to good cinematic discussion itself. <laughs> and that, that anyone that would generate such a list or discuss such a list is, is kind of uh, thematically and dramatically and uh, analytically inert and we keep having you on the podcast (laughs) but i would say yes because if if the imdb list was to have a a purpose or 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 any kind of redeeming quality to it i think it would be as a kind of cinema 101 or kind of it it it's rather than being the canon or kind of a prescriptive thing i think it works best as kind of a jumping off point for kind of particularly young people looking to to kind of get into to, to films, you kind of you have some of the big kind of heavy hitters there and some of the big names. It there are some that are missing, but but if you were to use it in that sense, I think this is a very good film for seeing one of the top names in in kind of American like big blockbuster cinema and and seeing them at their best and i think there are 
better films of his. Some of them are on the list, um, but I think this is a, a very good one for kind of, as I say, kind of seeing this, the, the Spielberg stuff. I think it's very easy to identify a lot of his uh, themes, a lot of his stylistic flourishes, uh, a, a lot of his strengths and some of kind of his weaknesses as well, kind of all, all kind of boiled up in here. So I would say, yeah, it should be on the list. But the list shouldn't exist. Um well, <laughs> must there be an IMDb 250? It doesn't matter because there is. It's a real indictment of a movie if you're going to put it on the list and then ask that the list doesn't exist. <laughs> it, 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 it gets... Uh... The film can still exist. <laughs> <laughs> but it's on a, it was in the list and you've just thrown it over that cliff. <laughs> It's not reformatting. I love the idea that the list is just a way of reformatting cinema. It's like you lure them all into this where they all get a free boat and then it's like, boom, you're gone. Um, but, but Jess, having literally just watched this for the podcast kind of last night and absolutely no pressure, first impressions. Do you think the movie is one of the best 250 movies ever made? No, but the reason that I'm going to say is because... 250 is a relatively small number so if you're gonna say the 250 best films in general and not just hollywood i think spielberg only deserves one spot and i don't think that this is the film that i would choose for that spot what film would you choose do you know classic park no hesitation there i kind of i like that it's one of my favorite movies and I think that a lot of the different things that he specifically developed for it and a lot of the filmmaking skills that you see in it, particularly around CGI and my kind of issues with modern CGI where it, it's quite dead and flat, um, it would always be my kind of go-to. Okay. And again, for his father themes and Alan Grant coming around to the idea of children as a thing and, you know... <laughs> <laughs> While there are giant monsters chasing you as well, it has absolutely everything kind of yeah. combined together. Everything you could want. Uh, yeah. I mean, that that's the real problem. That's the real indictment of Catch Me If You Can is that it doesn't feature dinosaurs. It has daddy themes, but no dinosaurs. That's the problem. <laughs> that's what's missing there. And Andrew, what about yourself? Yeah, um, I probably would. Um, I would. I'd be inclined to kind of, if I had Spielberg movies, obviously Jaws. Also Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park so much fun. And like I, th- I think one 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 evening we watched the entire uh, <laughs> the entirety of Jurassic Park after having Not even watched for a the podcast. movie and, and and yeah yeah and we were <laughs> like and it was so much fun and we were like we should why aren't we recording about this this is great um, but I'd I'd. I, put, I want the record I, to show might... that that was after we recorded an Akira Kurosawa episode. <laughs> <laughs> Which was also fun in its own way, but um, uh, did we also watch the Book of Henry that night? We did, um, but we didn't record that either. That was a fun <laughs> night. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> an interesting mix. <laughs> very interesting mix. But um, I'd, I'd, I'd put this behind those, but it would be probably my my... Maybe my third behind Spielberg Book of Henry, movie. behind Jurassic Park, and behind. Oh, sorry, <laughs> but um, I put it. I'd 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 put it behind um, Jaws and um, and Jurassic Park, kind of in that order. Which would would catch me if you can number three. Um, maybe it's because it's kind of um, uh, dear to me in a way that like Indiana Jones and ET aren't. 
um, particularly. Um, when you say dear to you, do you mean personally, as in like just outside of? Yeah, the, yeah, the like like the 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 easier the the I, I guess like I t I do tend to think of both questions um to to together but I, I i don't know i don't know if any of i mean i i'd say jaws and um and jurassic park are more wordy i guess of 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 being in the list but it, it like and if you were going to put 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 another one in especially like a recent like a 21st century spielberg movie this this one is um this one this one is the second mouse is um, it's it it fell into a bucket of cream. Um, it only took like half an hour. <laughs> yeah, um, the the first mouse was Minority Report, and um, <laughs> um, it gave up and died. Uh, sorry, I used to be good at that. Damn it. <laughs> All right then, and I would I would largely concur with with Andrew and Jess. I think that there is an argument for it being on the list as the twenty first century Spielberg. I think there's maybe an argument in terms of culmination of his themes and ideas, but I think it maybe exists best as a you know existing at the end of that spectrum. So you know, if you were to justify it being there, you would also have to have every other Spielberg movie you know that's on the list currently there as well. And so I kind of I, I kind of you know I. I like that it's there. I think it's good that it's there. I, I love that we're getting to talk about it. I also wouldn't begrudge it if it wasn't. I wouldn't be particularly sorry to see it gone. And then, so second question, Luke, is it on your own personal 250? So your own 250 favorite movies ever? Um, Yes. <laughs> Which I am saying for the purposes of brevity. You can just put all the stuff I said earlier <laughs> before you ask the three questions and just re-edit it into this bit here. All right. <laughs> And Jess, again, having literally just watched it last night, how is it for you? Is it is it, is it one of your favorite two hundred fifty movies ever? Um, and you mentioned like Jurassic Park is your favorite Spielberg. How would this fall in terms of Spielberg's general filmography? I get, I mean, to be honest, I think it would. I really enjoy fun blockbusters. That's kind of my wheelhouse, and I think that this is great fun. And I think it's very interesting, kind of antithesis to Jaws because Jaws is for so much of it is one location and yet it still has that kinetic Spielberg just constantly moving constantly kind of shopping and the way that he moves the camera it's kind of kept going the pacing you don't feel that kind of lag and you have that this to the nth degree where it's just really really like a freight train that's not going to stop I found it really fun and I would definitely watch it again. And I can see how you would watch it. It's one of those films that you'd watch every Christmas. Because I think there's always something different you're going to get out of it. Interesting question, actually, just coming off that. Is this a Christmas movie? Because um, I've seen some discussion about this. Because there's been some discussion about the importance of kind of Christmas in Steven Spielberg's filmography. Now, he's not exactly Shane Black. But it has been pointed out that there's a recurring motif in his films involving Christmas. So it tends to pop up in films like The Color Purple and Empire of the Sun are both set around Christmas time. Hook and Catch Me If You Can are as well. 1941 takes place at Christmas time as well. But even if you look at, say, the films that Andrew kind of alluded to when he talked about films produced by Spielberg. Stuff like, say, Gremlins and Young Sherlock Holmes as well tend to be Christmas set fantasies and the only actually Spielberg's TV show uh, Amazing Stories the only episode of that that originated from Spielberg was called Santa 87 
Um, and just to read the summary here, I haven't seen this, but I'm kind of interested. Christmas cheer is in noticeably short supply when Santa is arrested while delivering presents and it's up to one little boy to bust him out. Um, but it kind of like in that sense, you know, part of it's probably it's tied to Spielberg's kind of interest in childhood and wonder and imagination. But is Catch Me If You Can, would you consider this to be a Christmas movie? I think so. Yes. It, it comes up enough and you have... Christmas music and I think particularly I'm not going to go into the spoilers and but particularly in how it ends and the kind of culmination of everything kind of crashing together at that point I think I think he could really argue it is yeah I have a personal metric for for what makes a good Christmas film which this happens to me which is that it can show Christmas in as rosy and kind of as joyful or 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 as entertaining a light as as possible with the acknowledgement that Christmas is in many ways deeply sad or can be deeply sad. Uh, I think that perhaps it's because Spielberg himself uh, might not celebrate Christmas for, 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 for obvious reasons, but I think that he kind of really hits at kind of that in the Christmas scenes in this film in particular. And and what I really like about Catch Me If You Can is in general is that even though it's kind of a, a crowd pleaser and kind of like a swift moving kind of fun, like entertaining film, it is also in many ways deeply sad. And the, the way that it balances those two things, I, I think makes it work very well as a Christmas film. It's kind of interesting just when you mentioned there Spielberg not celebrating Christmas. He's literally talked about in his childhood being a, being an outsider looking in. Uh, and again, not to get too spoilery, ends up maybe being a large visual element in terms of the film's approach to Christmas at the climax. Yeah, it it's it's a it it is a Christmas movie in in um yeah, like like for all those reasons and not just because it's a good movie to watch at Christmas time. But yeah, it, it um kind of aside from um, like Luke, Luke is absolutely right because aside from marking the passage of time, which it does quite well in this movie, um, because you you feel the years go by as like each Christmas goes by, but it's also the way of 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 reintroducing pathos into what's a very fun uh, uh, movie, like the, the and 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 getting getting that balance in there. Um, in a very kind of a structured way, but it feels natural, you know. And uh, Andrew, what about yourself? Would this be on your own personal two hundred and fifty, your own two hundred and fifty favorite movies ever? Yeah, yeah, I, I, and um, I, I think I kind of hinted that it, it might, um, it, it, it might be more kind of, um, uh, it might be more true to put it in my own rather than in in the two hundred and fifty. For example, like. I might, I, 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 maybe Empire of the Sun belongs to be in 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 the two fifty, but it's probably been too long since I've seen it, like for it to be in mine. Um, but um, yeah, no, I definitely put it in mine. I really, I really enjoy this movie a lot. Like, and and kind of having kind of read the book and and um, kind of uh, looked at kind of like interviews with with Frank Abagnale. I I, I think it's a it's a great story, and the, the 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 look of it as well. Like I don't, I did, um, I don't think it spoils anything to say that this movie is 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 set in the sixties, and it starts with a real kind of 
uh, Pink Panther sort of um, yeah, yeah, which is which is which is really enjoyable. Um, it's just a nice kind of a movie to find yourself in. Um, um, yeah, yeah, it would definitely be on my two fifty. How about you, Darren? Um, absolutely, it would most definitely be um, on my own personal 250. It's a film that I absolutely adore, and it's a film that I keep going back to, and a film that I keep watching. And again, when I rewatched it for this podcast, I remember being surprised that I even remembered the camera movements in particular scenes. I would remember how the camera moves through a certain space, or how a particular sequence emphasizes, say, to pick an example, feet rather than anything else, and uses them to tell a story about what's happening. And I was kind of just, all of that had just, I'd absorbed without even realizing that I'd absorbed it. Um, but very, very quickly, before we kind of uh, jump into the spore zone, you mentioned there the opening sequence, um, which is one of the most defining and sort of distinctive aspects of the film. John Williams' score as well, which is very jazz influenced. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit in the spore zone. But the... Uh, oh, like clarinet or oboe or something in it. Yeah, and, and kind of many people have seen it harking back to Williams' 60s work, ironically. Um, it was his 20th collaboration uh, with Spielberg, um, but it's something that's kind of very, it feels very distinct from a lot of the other ones. Now, there are sequences towards the end where it starts to feel a bit more John Williams-y, particularly like the closing scene, not to get too spoilery, but as the camera's pulling back, you get a little bit of that John Williams flair. But throughout, it generally seems a bit more nimble, a bit quicker on its feet. Um, and again, worth noting, this was 2002, so I think Williams had had a very good year in terms of, he'd also scored Minority report because of course he had but he also managed to be the one person who emerged from say attack of the clones with his dignity intact uh providing the score for that which i think is is one of williams stealth best scores uh perhaps overshadowed by the fact the film is absolutely terrible um but the the opening sequence that we kind of alluded to there i think it's i think it's top uh top result on spotify where john williams is is the battle of the fates um, oh no, that's Phantom Menace. Um, it's Across the Stars is the one I was thinking of, which is the love theme from the oh, um, from Attack of the Clones. Oh, Attack of the Clones. Oh, okay, yeah, no, Attack of the Clones is. Um, it's got a good score. <laughs> okay, but, um, <laughs> a, a, a terrible movie. I think that's the worst of 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 the. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, whole lot of discussion. Probably hard to appreciate his score because if it's about. If it's if, if it's for the romantic yes. scenes in particular, you probably can't hear it. The sounds of your own brain leaking out of your ears. <laughs> is that the one with the sand? Yes, yes, yes it is. It's the one with the sand. <laughs> and John Williams filled up all of the instruments with sand to get that proper sound quality there, so that even <laughs> when they weren't on Tatooine, you could hear the sand there and understand why Anakin hated it so. Fine, I apologize. I take back the nice things I said about John Williams' score for the Attack of the Clones. But the the opening animation sequence, uh, which was animated by two Paris-based um, artists, uh, Olivier Conzel and Florence uh, Digas. Um, and basically what they did was they wanted something to kind of reference Saul Bass, so something like Vertigo or something from Anatomy of a Murder. Those are the posters they were given to design. And they basically, so what they did was they cut out basically South Park style. They spent four months pressing hundreds of mini stamps of each character's body parts onto paper, cutting them out and then sort of like filming it almost stop motion style. Uh, like South Park is basically what it was compared to. Apparently they hadn't actually seen the film. Uh, when they worked on that opening sequence, which is quite astounding. They had literally just read the book um, and been given some direction by Spielberg. And they just crafted that from from next to nothing, which is, is fantastic. It's an astounding sequence. It's absolutely beautiful. And then finally, last question before we jump into the sports zone. Luke, um, if listeners have not seen Catch Me If You Can, and maybe even if they have, would you recommend that they pause the podcast, 
stay indoors where it's safe and stream it to a nearby screen. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is the kind of film, like, it, it's quite long. It's about two hours and two and a half hours long, uh, thereabouts. But it is the kind of film that you can kind of just throw on at any time and just kind of uh, kind of lose yourself in and, and just kind of let the, the entertaining aspects of it just kind of wash over you. Uh, and you're not going anywhere else. So Yeah, I mean, there's a certain element of escapism yeah, to it. There's <laughs> like, well. remember planes, remember other countries, remember travel. Those were all great. We've got you covered here. Uh, what about yourself, Jess? Yeah, I don't really think so. It, like Luke was saying, it's two and a half hours, but it doesn't feel like it's two and a half hours. I think it's something, you know, you can happily kind of put on and it's just, it feels like it's, it takes about 20 minutes because of how fast it moves. Um, and it's so fun. And I think we all need a bit of that. So yeah, I think I would, yeah. And Andrew? Yeah, I, 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 anyone kind of listening, I'd recommend they stop the podcast, uh, round up all their friends, get in a minibus, um, drive, drive to a cinema that's not playing this, um, then uh, then come back and, 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 and watch the film at home um, and, uh, and then listen to us talk about it. Yeah. Um, no, don't do any of those things, ex- ex- except, for watch, <laughs> except for the last two. Yeah. Go, um, <laughs> Um, yes, while not endorsing uh, Andrew's apparently recklessly dangerous, recklessly pointlessly dangerous um, yeah, as well, which is the best part like of the day. Too. <laughs> yeah, um, that was very like Andy Kaufman, if Andy Kaufman were a sociopath. It's like, I've got a bus outside. I want you all to get in it. And uh, anyway, but I would I would wholeheartedly recommend this. If you are listening uh, in the United States, it is available to stream now on Amazon Prime. If you are in Ireland or the UK, uh, it is available to rent or buy from Google Play, from iTunes, from the usual source as well. Uh, please leave, enjoy the movie, come back and join us on the other side of the Spoiler Zone. Spoiler zone. So Jess, what is Catch Me If You Can about for you? Dads, like many Spielberg films. <laughs> so dads and divorce, I think, you know, I don't think it's a accident that we have Hanks's character talk about his divorce and his kind of displacement from his family and that frozen in time element where he likes to remember that his daughter is four even though now she's 15 because a lot of time has passed since they've last lived together and obviously Leo's character the kind of jumping off point for the film is that they're getting a divorce and he just cannot handle it at all he's meant to make probably his first adult decision of where he wants to live and he just can't so he chooses neither and uh, runs away and starts off his life of crime um, so, yeah, I think for me, it's it's about that kind of loss of innocence and trying to find a family, trying to find a sense of belonging that these two characters seem to build to, together. Yeah, this is kind of interesting in terms of Spielberg's work, because Spielberg, it's been pointed out that Spielberg probably had a natural affinity to Abagnale on a number of levels. Uh, on the most superficial level, um, Spielberg famously managed to bluff his way onto the Universal Studios lot. Uh, where he put on a suit, carried an empty briefcase, and walked past security every day for three months. And during the three films. 
um, I managed to pass on several more to the head of the studio, um, despite the fact nobody knew who he was. Apparently, he was stopped by security once about four weeks in. And when he was asked what he was doing there, he just said the words Lou Wasserman and continued walking. And that was the end of that conversation. Um, but yes, so so Spielberg kind of has said that he perhaps had a bit of affinity for Frank in that sense. And that, again, that sense of a young man kind of like being playful, being kind of, you know, adventurous and kind of going out into the world. But most obviously the stuff that Jess alluded to, which is the divorce and the dads, which are a common recurring Spielberg motif, the absent father being a huge part of his work and obviously uh, a huge part of his childhood as well. What's interesting though and i think this is what i kind of alluded to earlier when i talked about catch me if you can as a slightly different um spielberg film um is the sense in which a lot of spielberg's early films are about dads going away and basically breaking up the family and that being terrible and horrible and that being a scar that never really heals and again you can point to close Encounters of the third kind you could point to even say indiana jones and the last crusade which even though it's about the healing of a father and a son is still very much like dad you really screwed up you're terrible um, and basically, you're the reason I turned out the way that I am. What's interesting about that is that apparently Spielberg in the 90s uh, was inspired to reach out and to reconnect with his father um, and finally to strike up a relationship with him as well. Um, and that relationship was an interesting relationship in a number of respects, but it brought the two closer um, because apparently what he discovered was that Spielberg had always blamed his father for the breakup of the marriage and the breakup of the family unit. And it always harbored that resentment towards his father for that. He discovered that actually what had happened was his mother had been having an affair. Um, and his father had opted not to tell him for most of his childhood so that he would be protected from that. And he only found out about that as an adult. And it's kind of interesting that after that happens, you get this movie, which is in some ways about a stereotypical kind of failed um, Spielbergian father. And that's obviously with the Christopher Walken character. They're the character, Walken earning his second Oscar nomination, I believe, for his, his work here and doing a tremendous job as well. Very much kind of like a huckster. He's incredibly charming, but he's also not somebody you can count on. He's unreliable and he's ground down. But the difference between Catch Me If You Can and other Spielberg dad movies is that you very much have a replacement father. You have a, sure, your dad might have screwed things up, but it's okay because we've got Tom Hanks here and he's going to be your real dad. America's dad. Um, and there's very much a sense of that America's dad, quite literally. There's a sequence at the end where he's like, you're just a kid, Frank. And he's like, you're not my real dad. Stop trying to be. And it's like, yes, we get the subtext here. It's kind of interesting because it does, it feels like a maturing of those kind of Spielberg dad themes that have been running through his work. It feels and, like... And the mother comes off quite badly in this. In this. Like the the, the um, yes, it's difficult to think of another Spielberg movie where where um, with with a with a with a mother that gets that kind of um, uh, same treatment. So it, it, I don't know kind of how therapeutic or cathartic this was for 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 Spielberg. It's interesting too in this movie that. Frank, Ag Frank Abagnale, after running out at the age of 16, never saw his father again in his, in his yeah. life. All, all the, the scenes, and, 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 and thank God for those scenes, because they, they, like um, I love Christopher Walken, and he's great in this. Even gets in his obligatory dance. Scene, which like every Christopher Walken movie needs. 
Um, I think that's he has a like a background or a training in dance. Um, but yeah, that 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 all of that scenes and a lot of the kind of um, a lot of this movie kind of is hung around these these uh, aside, aside from um, his relationship with Hanrady is is these kind of uh, meetings with his father. Um, it's meant to be the kind of emotional core, I guess, of the of, of the movie in some way. Which, which, and 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 that they were they were they were um, pure fiction. Yeah, I mean, there's a really good quote here from um, the real uh, Frank Abagnale talking to Spielberg, um, and he said that you know when he read the script and um, and when he saw the movie, he said, even though I didn't see my dad again, every night after living a brilliant day and meeting many women and making much money. I come back alone to a hotel room and I just think of my mom and dad and fantasize about getting them back together and cry. That's the justification for the fantasy that you put in there. Um, and again, I do kind of very Abagnale that he's like, yeah, sure. I had a great day, made lots of money, met many women. It was brilliant. Fantastic. Just in case you're thinking my life is sad. It's not. Uh, but yeah, the kind of he, he does talk about that kind of resonance that he had and the kind of mythic quality that it lends. It's also worth noting that the real Frank Abagnale um, senior was actually not a con artist or a huckster. In fact, he was a victim. Um, in fact, Abagnale will talk about whenever he felt the need to generate sympathy for himself, he would talk about his dad. Uh, but in reality, he actually conducted, I think, somewhere in the region of over $1,000 worth of check fraud on his father, um, which back then was quite a lot of money. So slightly different than it may be portrayed in the film. But yeah, it, it kind of it is an interesting dynamic between the two. And it's very much, that's the journey that Frank goes on, is that journey of learning that he can't fix his parents' relationship because everything that he does over the course of the film is very much informed by the idea that he's going to magically, he's going to parent trap his parents, basically. So it's like, hey, I'm working on an airline. By the way, my family get to fly for free. So I'm going to fly you both to Hawaii. Isn't that going to be great? It's going to be fantastic. Hey, I got you a car. What do you say after lunch? We just drive around and impress mom about it. Oh, hey, you're wearing a crap suit. That's okay. I'm going to buy you a three-piece suit. We can go meet mother and you can go to uh, my wedding, both of you together. And it'll all be fine. And it's kind of like, it's interesting that the arc of the film is Frank coming to terms or accepting or being made to accept, to be quite frank. The fact that, you know, his family is not together. It's that moment that Jess alluded to at Christmas where he runs away and runs off to his mother's house and discovers that she actually has an entirely new, entirely different family to which he doesn't belong. That's the point at which he kind of surrenders himself and kind of you know if you want to be kind of glib and talk about the boomerism of it straightens up and flies right after that point after he accepts that you know carl hanratty who is a divorced father who is arguably just as failed as his own father can be that surrogate father figure to him perhaps yeah i mean it's the the the, the kind of the thing about frank is as i say he has that kind of childlike um way of, of looking at things where where not only is his parents' divorce something that that he can kind of fix and put together and make make fine again? Because you know, there's it's it's not a kind of fundamental difference between the two of them. It's to do with you know their financial situation or or or, or things like that. And so if if he gets his dad a car, suddenly everything will be fine again, or or, or things like this. Like the Frank is in many ways so deluded and he's kind of lying to himself constantly but these are kind of lies that he's been told and kind of been made to to, to buy into because like frank very much has an image of his family as this kind of american ideal 
in in a lot of ways you know his dad is like a you know the, when we're when we're introduced to frank senior it's at that kind of very american like he's a member of the club and like he's so well respected and he's a member of the community and you know he's a businessman like the third hour of the irishman basically <laughs> but it's like it's that quintessential like american father figure um which he frank senior isn't in fact and like his parents marriage the, again it's that kind of quintessential baby boomer thing of like they met during the war and like frank senior was this like gallant american soldier with this like romantic story that he tells over and over and like even you know even she kind of tells it and buys into it as this kind of this romantic thing uh but they're you know they're not necessarily kind of destined or, or, or kind of preordained to, to 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 be together and it's like i think so much of catch me if you can is kind of what what makes it kind of a good con film is that it, it it's kind of it kind of pulls apart the 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 kind of glamour and the kind of romanticism of lies you know i i think there there's kind of there's always been a great tradition in storytelling of the kind of the charismatic trickster or the the kind of the 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 con artists um we kind of see figures like that in in stories as kind of clever and kind of people that through their own cunning kind of succeed and, and what this story kind of really does with Frank Jr. And it, it allows you to kind of live vicariously through the, the kind of cons and the tricks and stuff that he pulls off and really get the entertainment out of those. But, but again, there's kind of a, a sadness in that, like he's, he's, he's doing all of these things because of a lie that he himself has fallen for. And, and, and I think that there, there is a sense in which that he, he never kind of really loses that. I think there's a, there's a reference in the film to the somebody says at, at one point you know you you keep pushing the lie until you make it true and this is a thing that i think certainly frank believes and i i think it's a thing that people in society in general believe in one form or, or another whether it's you know kind of fake it until you make it or 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 kind of pulling the the wool over other people's eyes but you you can push a lie until people believe it but you can't push a lie until it's true and and I think what you have what happens to Frank is he that's what he kind of realizes more than anything else, you know he 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 can believe that he can bring his parents back together but he can't make it so, or you know he 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 can it, it, it's something that kind of happens over and over again uh, in in the film you know he, he he like he his 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 kind of romance of of Amy Adams uh, Brenda the 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 nurse, it it is coming from a place of genuine uh loneliness and a genuine eagerness to to kind of connect with another person because he's been living all these kind of fake identities and because he's disconnected from his own family but he can kind of set himself up in this new family unit and he can set himself up as this kind of patriarchal ideal as like a doctor or a lawyer or both <laughs> but and a lutheran don't forget a lutheran <laughs> But but you know, but yeah, he's not a Lutheran. Like he can't, he can make people believe it, but he can't make it true. Uh, and you know, he can, he can, he can, he can try to assert himself in in, in society in this way, but he he can't kind of uh, address the, the the things in himself that that he finds kind of lacking or or, or kind of making lonely or sad. I mean, the, the, the stuff about kind of Hanks becoming a replacement father figure, again, 
I think there's a positive way of, of looking at that or kind of a, a, a rosier way of looking at that. And the end of the film, it's, it's one of those Spielberg classic kind of, and in real life, this was the story. And, you know, they became best friends and all this stuff. And I think there's a way of reading the end of the film where Frank goes from being this kind of young con, con artist to, you know, solving these kind of crimes and stuff like that. There's a kind of a, a positive way of looking at it, but there's also, <laughs> I think there's, there's, there's something fundamentally um, kind of tragic about it in a sense. Uh, and, and Well, eventually he grew up. Well, that's, I mean... Got a job, you know, settled down, learned to be part of the system, man. I don't know. If you look at it from like a Marxist kind of view, like at one point, he Frank is like, how long do I have to work here? And Tom Hanks is kind of like forever. And it kind of is true because he's out of jail specifically within this context of the FBI decided that he was of more use to them catching other crooks than in prison. So there is that kind of inherent threat and it's it's much more extreme than the usual context of working where like he has no other choice. He has this background he is not going to get a job anywhere else. He has to do this. He's he's kind of being used by the FBI in a way that genuinely happens. And it is a bit kind of icky. And what what, what you see, like, both through the various cons that, that, that kind of Frank picks up and then ultimately where, where he ends up, con artists, like people that swindle and the people that are swindled, what happens when the kind of the lie is exposed? They don't tend to drop it. They They just move on to a new lie. That that applies to both sets of people, and the, I think there's a sense with 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 Frank Jr. He realizes that he can't reconnect with his own father, so he just decides that he has a new father, and, and there's a sense where he he feels that he doesn't you know, uh, kind of fit into these kind of roles, and then he tries to run away again at the end, and and Tom Hanks just tells him you know nobody's chasing you, so then he just comes back. And what you see there, to me, is kind of a tragic uh, fate for Frank Jr., where he just decides to believe that this works for him, even though we see visibly that it doesn't. I think definitely if he had a choice, he would have went back to his own father. <laughs> he would have just kind of spent the 12 years in prison and just totally FBI, no. Because ultimately, like, Hanratty is even more of a loser than Abignale Sr. Because having uh, Frank Frank Sr. has the entire United States government uh, on top of him, crushing down <laughs> against him, where 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 is like multiple times um, Hanratty has 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 the whole of the government behind him, uh, pushing him you know forward like um, uh, <laughs> helping him and still manages to to to. To, to mess up everything and be foiled, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's it's um, there's there's not there isn't there isn't a great sense in which kind of um, uh, in in which Hanratty is particularly kind of um, 
impressive or anything. He's just just kind of he's he's able to do things that other people find boring. I guess. So yes, he was the character I was rooting for for most of the movie. <laughs> and um, keep at them, yeah. But as I would say, um, just very quickly before we move on to Hanratty, um, because I think there's some interesting stuff there. Just on kind of what what Luke and Jess were saying there about that kind of dynamic at play there, and. This is what I talk about when the movie feeling like a kind of a 21st century Spielberg film and kind of this idea of Spielberg and Hanks in particular as curators of kind of the, the you know, boomer mythology and stuff like that. Obviously, they they collaborated on stuff like Band of Brothers, for example, and obviously, um, you know, Saving Private Ryan. But things like, for example, Hanks being a typewriter enthusiast, to pick one small example of it. But even, say, Forrest Gump, uh, which is largely a movie myself and Andrew talked about on the podcast before, but where, you know, Forrest Gump is basically the 90s anxiety of the 60s. It's like, boy, the 60s really screwed us up, huh? They really left these scars in the national psyche, those silly hippies with their freedom and ideals and liberation. Look at what they've done to the country. It's kind of interesting to see Catch Me If You Can as kind of almost like a cynical rejoinder to that, where it's like, yeah, but it's all right in the end because they settle down and get office jobs and basically become the man. You eventually, like, you stop running from the man and eventually you become the man. And it's grand. It all works itself out. What, did you feel that there, there was a um, a a small um, Forrest Gump reference when the little dollar bill <laughs> flew up in Comes the air. flying out, yes. <laughs> yeah, in front of Tom Hanks. Um, I don't well, know. Again, that gets back at kind of Jess's Marxist reading of the film where it's like, yes, we're doing Forrest Gump, but this time it's not a feather, <laughs> it's a dollar bill because it's also completely <laughs> meaningless and empty. And again, you even have a Christmas when he goes to get him at the printer. You have the checks, the blank checks flying like snow. During that scene when they're when they're sort of like running around inside the printer as well, the sense of money being kind of entirely meaningless. And again, it's been argued that you know you can fit this within the grand Leonardo DiCaprio school of capitalist criticism alongside films like say The Aviator, which he did a few years later, Wolf of Wall Street, uh, even The Great Gatsby to, to pick another example. And kind of you know that as far as actors go, you could argue that DiCaprio particularly after Titanic, is an actor who's very good at doing these sorts of movies that could be read as criticisms of, of kind of capitalism and of kind of excess greed and kind of desire and want. It may also just be that those are the kind of movies that get people Oscars and Leo really wants an Oscar. But it's kind of, it does, it is interesting that you plot his arc of his career and that theme keeps coming up again and again and again. But I do kind of wonder that. And again, this is something that's that's interesting in terms of America, because again, Luke mentioned the con artist and the ideal of the con artist. And he mentioned that historically, and again, on the podcast, we've covered a couple of con artist films. We covered The Sting from 1970 uh, or 1972. Apologies. We covered Paper Moon from 1973. It's interesting how a lot of those early con artist movies are exactly what Luke says. They're aspirational. They're very much like the con artist is a great figure, or at least they're a surviving figure. They're able to survive at the margins. They're doing what they need to, to get by. Um, but what's interesting is that around the turn of the millennium, um, and again, it's notable that this came out a couple of years before Mad Men started as well. You have this idea of the 60s con artist hustler, but the idea of the con artist being basically ineffective, eventually being crushed or exposed or being pathet rendered pathetic. So like in Mad Men, you have Don Draper, who is this model of kind of like 60s success. But he's revealed to be basically a con artist who's, you know, I think was it uh, Emily Nussbaum described him as having the origin story of a serial killer um, and not entirely inaccurately. Uh, but this idea that he eventually becomes this kind of almost sad sack, pathetic, empty shell of a man. But even here you have Frank Abagnale, who's like living the best possible life. But the whole point of the movie is how hollow and empty it is and that eventually he must come home. 
that thing that Luke mentioned, where it's like at the end, you can run, but you're always going to come back at the end. There's no escaping it. And yeah, the sense that maybe that's a rather grim and rather sad ending to what was traditionally seen as a you know, quintessentially American outlaw story. The con man being kind of similar to the cowboy, for example, or the gangster, the outlaw who makes their own fate, and kind of the embodiment of the American ideal. You literally start with nothing. The con man is nothing but a literally self-made man. He invents himself from nothing. Uh, By the way, do we know the origins of the term confidence man? I kind of love this story. So in 1849 in New York, a man named William Thompson stole a gold watch just by asking for it. Strolling down Broadway, he'd approach a stranger and he'd ask, Have you confidence in me to trust me with your watch until tomorrow? And eager to prove their good faith, people would just hand him their watch and expect to meet him that day tomorrow, that time tomorrow, to give it back. Spoiler, he never did. But apparently that's where the origin of the term confidence man comes from. Literally the question, Have you confidence in me to trust me with your watch until tomorrow? It really was a simpler time. Canadians still don't lock their doors on mass. <laughs> I think the highest amount of burglaries per square kilometer or whatever, because really? people just they don't lock their doors. Um, but it's it's interesting, Darren, <laughs> that you mentioned westerns because for me, the thing about America's obsession with the con artist and the con man and G men and the FBI really comes out of you know films from the 1930s, which a reaction to um to the great depression and how people viewed banks and how, how people viewed con men as kind of these robin hood like figures in people like john dillinger and that and i think a film like this is almost like later westerns where the west is shrinking and it's getting smaller and smaller and it's less and less possible to live that kind of life because this type of crime is becoming less and less possible because you know you just you see in this the noose is tightening there's only so many times he can do it there's only you know they kind of say he's bouncing checks around certain areas in america and it's he's running out of banks and in europe again like he's just going to run out of places to go and i think it's very much that kind of american thing of like it's just shrinking there's no there there is nowhere to go yeah i mean hanratty says that to him on the christmas call he says uh you're it's a mathematical certainty you're going to get caught yeah. that's the only way that this ends and it is the I only way know. it ends if it feels like kind of being a being a confidence man used to be something more democratic and now it's become a more sort of exclusive club i guess that that like we we kind of that that we, we even even on the two fifty like the the demonstration that like people love a con man we've 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 watched movies like a um like a paper moon and uh the sting they're all kind of like set in the golden age of um of of you know swindles um. And the thirties, as sort of just described. Yeah, yeah, and but it's it's more 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 likely these days that when when we read about um, swindles, it's it's uh, you know large financiers or are uh, like uh, huge Ponzi schemes or like it's no longer like the the the, the you know the 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 plucky kind of. Um, 
a, a, a kid or, or somebody. It's more likely to be Hanratty executing it than Abagnale. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it. it's it's the it's the rich and kind of um, uh, uh, powerful who are um, who are, who are, that it's kind of become their domain now, and it's no longer something that's um, uh, that's associated with the poor. Or when the poor do it, they don't get away with it. I guess. Um, There's definitely a way that you can kind of look at the the art of the con or or, or whatever the art of the deal, <laughs> and, and see it as this kind of cancerous like capitalist excess that 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 spirals kind of out of control and and past any kind of logical uh, a point. And I suppose that's when they either become too big to fail or certain to fail. Uh, there's there's kind of no middle ground. Um, with like with Frank, if you zero in on any one particular con and like the, the kind of entertaining ones in the film in particular, there there are ones where you kind of get the rush of 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 kind of his success because you you kind of see what he has succeeded. Like I, I think in particular, like when he when he escapes at the airport, he has a very particular goal of of kind of getting past the FBI guys, and you see how he does that, and you have that kind of the kind of click of cleverness and oh he's done it but frank's crimes in general he's doing for really no other reason than because he can do them and because he doesn't know what else to do when frank runs away he initially kind of needs to this kind of uh cashing check scam to to kind of survive but he expands it past the point of really knowing what to do with like he kind of is like this like dog chasing a car. And I think a lot of cons kind of grow, grow to that. If you look at some of the kind of famous cons of, of the last couple of years, like Anna Sorokin, the, the fake heiress, or, or the, like there's that great article uh, about the, the McDonald's Monopoly oh, yes, yeah. game. Yeah. And the, the, the how that was a con basically from the very beginning. And the people involved in these either are doing them for very kind of abstract or, or kind of yeah. no real need or, or, or reason, or they they just kind of fall into them because they can do them. Uh, and, and like Frank's Frank's scams just kind of grow to the point where he has to keep doing them because there's there's really nothing else that he can do. And you see his kind of glamorous successes early on, and they lead to this point where he's just printing checks in like a French church. Because he can't do anything else, uh, and again, like Frank, Frank, Frank tells Hanready that like people know what you tell them to. Sorry, know. hold on, wait a second. Just go back there a second. Was the, was the McDonald's Monopoly game a scam? <laughs> I spent so much money. <laughs> There's a great article which I think they are adapting in, in, into a film. Um, there, there was a guy working in security in the place where they printed the McDonald's Monopoly cards. And so he was responsible for moving them from one place to another. And he gamed the thing from the very beginning. Oh. For years, this one guy, for years, this one guy made money off of deciding who won the McDonald's Monopoly game and like gamed the system and cheated the system and had his own intricate network of who would win. 
Would you say he had a monopoly, Luke? Yes, he literally did. Uh, but it's again, it's like he saw that he could do it. He did do it. And it just grew to the point where he had to keep doing it. He's like the Hamburglar. But... <laughs> I feel like we've just told Andrew Christmas doesn't exist. The <laughs> Hanratty is like the Mayor McCheese. Um you're representing the government. Um, well, you can uh, you can see these con artists as as people that kind of get their get their comeuppance because they're 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 they've they've put themselves in a system that is unsustainable and requires unsustainable success and unsustainable growth. Whereas that's really the the system that we live in that they're over already trying to escape from. Yeah, yeah the, again. I think with Americans in particular, and if you wanted to look at this through the kind of the baby boomer lens and the kind of Spielberg and his Americana lens, there's that famous adage about Americans that they see themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And a lot of Frank's hangups about his family in particular come from this idea that they were financially successful. With the big house and with the big uh, Christmas and, then, and everything. Yeah. Like that. Well, his mother still is. <laughs> like his his mother lives in the home alone house. Um, <laughs> but it, it's this idea that, that that Frank takes hold of that if he just buys a Cadillac, then then everything is is back to normal. Uh, and again, you you can see him as as kind of deluded for believing that, but people believe that kind of thing all the time. And the more that it becomes clear that that's not the case, the harder Frank believes in it. And you not to not 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 to get political, particularly about America, particularly now, but you 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 have a a, a a system over there now where people like people believe that if it is only exposed that like President Trump is a liar then suddenly everything will fix itself. Whereas the people that he's lying to, a lot of them don't care. care. <laughs> they, they, they want to believe in the lie. And so you have both sets of, 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 of people kind of uh, lying to themselves because they, they want the lie to continue. And the lie has become, you know, again, too, too big to fail. Um, I mean, even even within the film, it's notable that the point at which Frank's lie becomes too big to fail isn't anything involving finances. It isn't anything involving numbers. It's the point at which the marriage to Brenda, that's the point at which Frank's lie becomes unsustainable. And again, you mentioned that idea of kind of what he'd been indoctrinated and kind of what he'd been taught to expect. There's a lot of performativity in this film, and it's particularly uh, with regards to Frank Abagnale Sr., and particularly that sequence where he's dancing with the mother. Like, Frank Sr. is telling that story, but he's telling that story for the audience of his son. He's instilling that in his son. And that wonderful sequence that Andrew alluded to where Walken does the obligatory walking walk and dance sequence, that is very much performed for Frank Jr.'s benefit. You have, like, Frank Sr. locking eyes with his son while dipping his mother. It's very much like this is being performed for your benefit so you can internalize this and so you can understand that this is what family life is supposed to be and even later on when he moves in with kind of brenda's parents you know my uh jean and, and kind of watches them dance there's very much a sense of that being performed are they for- irish lutherans well i mean has anyone here seen kelly okay the bizarre yeah the bizarre thing that they're watching on the tv has <laughs> <laughs> something to do with ireland what i don't know for the benefit of the art, I don't know what that was meant to be. But I find it really interesting that uh, taking the kind of boomer point 
for me walking being like I just saw this pretty woman and was like I'll have that and just made it happen is very much like this boomer idea that like Spielberg you can just walk in somewhere and now I work here and I'm on the payroll they have this idea it's not necessarily about the lies for me this film is not so much about lies it's about thinking you can manifest things into reality it's manifest destiny it's the American thing of I can just cause it to happen spontaneously that people do believe and people do buy into and I think that's why it's so hard for Walken to eventually admit to his son that I can't just get her back because she is a person and you know it's not as simple as just I'll, I'll just we were at a dance and then everything will be fine that's interesting because I was kind of wondering about that. Do we think, like, I think Frank Sr. realizes that a lot earlier than Frank Jr. does, but he just plays along. Like, there's very much the sequence where they're having with the, ooh, fuck is cold uh, sequence uh, where he's, <laughs> you know, talk, where Frank's like, get in the Cadillac and go for, go for a ride, we'll pick her up. And he's like, you know, no, no, I can't do that. And the reason I can't do that is because uh, the IRS, that's the reason why I can't do it. And it's kind of a sense if I wonder if right. it's more about Frank Sr. trying to protect Frank Jr., from that realization. I would agree. Yeah. Cause I think he, he mentions, I, I came on the train alone and I'm going home on the train and he's going home to his empty house. Like he's very much accepting of the fact that his life has changed. And, and this is the reality that, that he's in now. And I think he's, he's just not able to communicate that to his son who is what 16, 17. It's a hard conversation. There's a really beautiful moment where he's like, I'm going to buy you a three piece suit and then we're going to meet mom. And like before Walken says, she won't see me, Frank. And he says, it's a good suit. Um, it's like for a moment, even, <laughs> even Frank Sr. buys in. Maybe. Uh, um, maybe if I just, how nice suit. Um, but yes. I th- yeah. I, I think he, he gets how foolish he would look, you know, Coming back to her in the Cadillac or in the suit or or any of those sorts of um, schemes, and he he doesn't want to humiliate himself any further. Um, but he can't say that. I think he also doesn't want to humiliate his son. Yeah. he doesn't want to make his son feel silly for believing that it's as simple as that, and that 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 could be how it works. Yeah, but it, that 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 scene where where Frank Jr. meets his dad in the restaurant and, and he tries to give him the Cadillac. It really, it's a really good expression of the kind of the, the, the film's themes of kind of image. And, and there's a real irony to it because like Frank Sr. is trying to give his son this kind of subtle reality check, but he's like, he's telling the waiter, like my son bought me a Cadillac. It's a cause for celebration. And it, it, again, it, he's trying to give Frank Jr. the truth but he's in presenting a much wider lie. And the, like he, he tells Frank Jr. that he can't take the, the Cadillac, not because fundamentally, um, you know, he, he can't fix his marriage or, or, or things like that, or, or because he's fundamentally in financial difficulty. Like he can't say it in those explicit terms. The way that he says it is he, he tries to make Frank Jr. see that it would look specifically look bad to to the to the uh the irs and there is a real dramatic irony to it because frank frank senior is trying to and and is kind of beaten down by the financial realities of the 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 system and frank 
Frank Sr. Uh, dies in the end, uh, according to Hanratty, uh, running for a train. That one train, and he was taken by himself. He mentions, yeah, at the dinner, he's like, he went there on the train, he's going back on the train. And the, the financial reality is that he has to, uh, to take public transport everywhere. Um, but he probably should have taken the cab. <laughs> if only he'd taken <laughs> the cab. He, he probably, he, he should have, like, again, in terms of image and in terms of the, the kind of the metaphor for it, he should have taken the Cadillac, but obviously he couldn't. Uh, he, was, he was not in a position to. Uh, Frank Frank Jr.'s delusion is that Frank Sr. is in a position to take that car. Just in terms of Frank Sr. as well, because there is that interesting ambiguity in that final sequence. So they, you know, they meet at the restaurant, the very fancy upmarket restaurant, and then they meet at the bar later on. And there's that interesting kind of tension between them. And it kind of ties into what we're talking about there, where even Frank Jr. at that point seems to realize what's going on. But Frank Sr. refuses to quite let go of it because it's like, Dad, it's over. I'm going to stop now. And Frank Sr.'s like, they're never going to catch you, Frank. Um, or, you know, I'm your father. Then ask me to stop. And he, he, like, Frank Sr. literally cannot ask his son to stop. He cannot ask his son to settle down. He cannot ask his son to give up the ghost. It's just not in Frank Sr.'s character. And the idea that that has kind of messed him up a great deal, that that's messed up Frank Jr. And again, if you want to get into the boomer stuff, that's what makes Frank Hanratty a good dad in contrast. Because Frank, Frank, you know, just Hanratty's like, sure, go off, have your adventures, but know that you're coming home just in time for breakfast and check fraud, I guess. Um, and even things like you have that stuff that's running through that 60s enthusiasm where, you know, Carl, his, his father's like, to the moon, we're going to take him to the moon. Or his mother's talking about how half his kids, half the kids his age are high on dope, throwing rocks at police. There's a real sense of, well, thank goodness somebody is going to straighten out uh, Frank Jr. Thank goodness somebody's going to step in and take charge. Um, and there's a sense that, like, a lot of his issues, Frank Jr.'s issues, come from the fact that Frank Sr. isn't able to be a responsible parent to him, isn't able to say no to him, isn't able to tell him how things really are, whether because he can't admit it to himself or because he doesn't want to hurt him. And that comes that com- comes from the movie and not from um, the true story as well. Yeah. Um, because Frank Frank Abinell talks a lot about his father and how lucky he was to have had the father that he had. I mean, he 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 talks as well as as well about his 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 adopted father, who who isn't uh, who isn't Hanratty. Um, his his. His his adopted father in the FBI was oh um, was Joseph O'Shea. Um, uh, he didn't want his Joseph name associated O'Shea, with the film. Yeah. He he insisted that yeah. his name be changed, although they did remain friends throughout his life. But yeah, he didn't want his name associated with this film. So Tom Hanks picked Carl Hanratty, which was a footballer, I believe. Such a Tom Hanks. <laughs> and he he's <laughs> he's he, he um like like he after after he had served the the last kind of like 8 years of his term has continued for the last 40 years to work with the FBI because the FBI is his uh family now you know and his his son as well now is 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 in the FBI also um but but the, the, he he's very clear too about um about his relationship with his father and how good a a, a father he he was lucky to have and that he lost his father because he ran off you know um 
where whereas the the father in the in the movie is kind of as as you say sort of a bad father and encouraging him um you know like i think a lot about um um that sort of stuff at the moment you know um like losing your kind of um financial stability people losing their jobs people unable to uh pay their um rent or their mortgages and finding all these things difficult like i suppose we're lucky to in some in some ways we're lucky to live in the country that we live in in some ways we're not but um i don't know i've 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 been i've been trying trying to kind of comfort myself with the idea that 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 um that i can um you know be 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 happy on very little because i like um um and and i i guess in in the movie doesn't really uh touch on that so much because it it feel it feels like whenever things go bad kind of economically thing things are just crap it's it's grim if if you're not kind of you know writing checks um um for for yourself and 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 part of that does represent the kind of the the economic reality in america where i suppose supports aren't aren't aren't, aren't great we've got a weird system of collecting taxes in other countries where they don't just take it from you before you can like decide whether or not to give it to them that's because they have to have like because so many americans have to have more than one job or more than one revenue stream they couldn't trust you to do it that way either because they need to know how many jobs you have and what you're doing and kind of they need they want you to be responsible because there's so many people and because they have so many different it would just be such a mess which is sad yeah if only they would just have minimum wage (laughs) (laughs) what i would say to what andrew's saying though um just about that idea that like life's crap if you don't have money i think that the movie does capture the sense that life can be crap even if you do have money like it's very clear that frank can't buy what he wants and like it's very clear that even with brenda um like after yeah, the 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 the, re- the real real kind of like happiness is in kind of you know Brenda's parents say or in or in his mother's new family, family. which yes where, is admittedly where, affluent where, yes admittedly very very affluent. yeah yeah which which where 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 it's where where they have those things but they're not fleeting you know and they're it's not to the yeah. extreme but again with 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 Brenda's family, they they very much present themselves as like wholesome, the, yeah. the big together, smiley, happy family living in the big house on the hill. But like Brenda makes it very clear that that's not the case. Yeah, she can't <laughs> like go home while her father's alive, um, because of the abortion that she had. It's a strange kind of a, yeah. um, yeah, like an introduction to that because well it. What I find really interesting about like Sheen's performance in the film, in particular him and the uh, Brenda's kind of mother, they're really in their performance. There's no hint of that whatsoever. No. And again, it's 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 so easy for for Brenda to go back into the idea that they're they're sitting on his lap family, singing that Kelly song. Yeah, Frank is yeah. joining that. Yeah, we you know, and like Frank, Frank kind of proposes marriage because again he understands that 
if they present the lie to Brenda's parents that they can all be together and happy and brilliant and wonderful again, the parents will go for that. And they do. Like, Frank is so obviously uh, not who he says he is at their big family dinner. You know, he, 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 he claims to be a lawyer who just decided on a whim to start dabbling in pediatrics. And Martin Sheen kind of pulls him aside and it, it seems like it's all really about to go long, go wrong. And like Sheen is so kind of intense in, in that moment. And he has that kind of persona as like a, a, a someone you can't like- Knock, knock, the, knock, knock. They're kind of a, a, an actor. And Frank's like, I'm in love with your daughter. And he's like, okay, well, everything's great. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> I love that scene. It, it, it is terrific. I do. I love that scene. I think- it's authentic it's authentic to real people and and what they want to believe and how they kind of make those decisions because i got that impression it's there's a very kind of tense atmosphere it's very kind of threatening and it's you need to sell me a specific lie he can't just lie his way out of it any which way it has to be within this specific stream and i think it's really interesting the way again like they're letting brenda back in again on this very specific one thing marriage has to be this and that's it and it has to be he has to have this great job and whatever and otherwise they're just not allowed in and I feel like that's what he's getting invited into in that scene is he starts talking about what what do I have to do to study the bar how am I going to do it like he she knows he's not a doctor but if he's saying he'll be a lawyer it doesn't matter he provides the appearance of propriety he performs propriety. He's performative. It's, yeah. it's very much like, as long as you look like you could be mistaken from a distance as a happy family, that's fine. Yeah. It's in, it's interesting as well, that scene, because for the most part, we only hear about the family that Brenda describes kind of in tears. And the family that we see is a very different family. And the the there's... In that scene, there's both the sense that that the reality that uh, that Frank has, that Frank Connor, that that Frank Connors has created, that Frank Abagnale has created, is going to um, fall apart. But there's also the sense in that scene that that um, that um, her father is 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 revealing the because he the way the way he he um phrases the question is like what, what um you know you're you're a doctor you're a lawyer you're a lutheran like what what would you want to do with with uh with brenda so it, it it's it's the one moment when 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 the kind of happy family reality is 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 about to crack and in in the way he manages that he saves himself and he saves the, the 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 kind of reality of that family as well, um, by by allowing them each to kind of you know lie, I guess. A lie agreed upon. Yeah, the 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 idea that that family can just go on after kind of Brenda's abortion and just all kind of mutually and silently agree that nothing happened and everything is fine particularly I think appeals to Frank who again is, is is chasing this idea that that everything in his family can kind of just go back to normal again and that that scene that you were talking about earlier Andrew where they're all watching that bizarre Lutheran Irish fundraiser thing on, on the television 
they're all kind of happily singing along to this song and it looks so alien to to frank and he's so visibly uncomfortable in the scene and yet he wants so badly to to kind of be part of that idea um but kind of I, there's no real sense that he could ever really properly fit into it. I think with, with Frank Jr., there's, there is a genuine kind of affection for, for Brenda there. But he, again, the idea that he starts to tell himself that he could have kind of a happy marriage with her is not really rooted in, in any kind of honesty because she doesn't know who he is. <laughs> you know, she, she thinks he's 28. She, she's she older than him. Yeah, she doesn't he's even know. her in like statutory rape. <laughs> she doesn't even know his, his his name. She doesn't even know kind of fundamental things about him that could uh, allow them to establish a, a kind connection, of a true yeah. connection. And and it's again, it's like Frank Jr. is in pursuit of these things that he wouldn't even know what to do with even when he gets them. Like the 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 scene that he has with Jennifer Garner. Again, he like he has projected this image of himself as like a sexy, successful millionaire, and in a moment where he can be exposed as vulnerable, he really is very quickly. He he looks like so much, so much like a child in that scene uh, when she's then asking him how much money uh, uh, he would pay to to spend the night with her. I mean, he 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 quickly comes back from that. Because they, like, like <laughs> I suppose a, a, a lot of people know this as the movie or the story about this this sixteen year old boy who was a pilot and a doctor and a uh, and a lawyer, also a prostitute. Um, so, <laughs> which is like less um less glamorous but yeah a, a, a woman pay, pays him four hundred dollars um uh which um, which is somehow worse which, than the brenda which thing. i guess it's, is uh, it's not sorry? only like it's somehow worse than the brenda thing it's not even trapped into statutory no it's like, no, nothing's like, worse than the brenda thing poor poor uh uh brenda like i felt so um bad for brenda for brenda it's like she's finally getting where she wants to get she's finally being respected by her family and in her career and you know she's getting married and none of it is true no it's 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 heartbreaking and i can kind of understand in that scene where her first kind of hang up is you're not lutheran is because they've obviously bonded on that level first and that's a kind of personal thing about him and it's just she's like what like mind blown she can't deal with it i think for 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 poor amy adams the the portrayal the, the betrayal hits particularly hard because there there's the the scene at the hospital where she's in tears and she's only been in the job a week and she feels lost and kind of useless and frank's in I suppose, and his kind of line is that she actually is capable and and worthy and 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 good at what she does, and to 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 have someone establish a connection with you on the basis that 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 you're kind of that you have self worth, uh, and then to reveal that 
that that they've been lying to you this entire time it's i think particularly damaging um but again it, it, so much of the film is is this idea of of kind of lying to to people and people not being able to to face up to that lie Fra frank jr's uh big insecurity and, and big motivator is is it, it, like he can't accept the idea that that his parents and their marriage and their lives weren't what they were kind of selling to him and it's 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 but it, it, it that's a pain that he inflicts on other people for, for me i kind of read the jennifer garner scene a bit differently than you guys did i think when he gets into kind of haggling with her and she gives him the $400. He feels like he's winning on grounds he is comfortable with and, and where he knows he's successful. You know, he knows how to do the fraud. He knows how to get the payoff. And it's like an extreme couponer getting paid out in a supermarket. It's he's on his comfort, you know, his comfort zone again. He's a little boy, and in that moment, he's able to get back to where he is comfortable. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I, it's kind of removed from the section. I, I, I thought that as well. Yeah, but the, 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 that was that was kind of the the um, triumph triumph out of out of a moment of kind of vulnerability. Vulnerability, yeah, yeah. But, but I think there's still in you see in frank the kind of the fundamental lacking that he has there as compared to the image that he set up because like she goes in to kiss him and, and there's kind of a close-up on him gulping on his nervousness like and and there is something you see there his kind of his naivety and and his his inexperience and kind of again his vulnerability she's a lot more confident i think in even though she's getting conned, she's a lot more confident in herself and her sexuality and everything in that moment. And like Frank's, the image that, even though he comes out on top, the, the image that he's kind of presented to put himself there as this kind of James Bond figure is to the, to the, to the audience, I, I, to, to me, like obviously kind of exposed as, as like a, a facade, you know? And he, he it's funny to me that he latches on to to James Bond in particular, uh, who's like, and it's, it's like a it's, great, a, it's a great, it's a uh, great montage, yeah, of you know getting the suit and the car and, and doing the Sean Connery impression and stuff. Here you go, Mister Fleming. Yeah, and like he he he, you can see why the James Bond image would appeal to him so much. But just for me, James Bond is such a preposterously uh, uh oversexed kind of uh, uh figure again it's the the idea that you would want to emulate him is so childish to me well, james bond is a little boy as well i mean if you look at you know his obsession with women it's like a, a dog chasing a car he doesn't know what to do and, he actually and em, like... em is his mother as well like em is transparently daniel craig's mother it's, it's yeah. a young boy who needs but, a strong but mother. james bond is kind of synonymous with a very 60s <laughs> idea of, of, of sex and sexuality and, and every time james bond is about to have sex the camera cuts away or he says something fundamentally embarrassing and childish not in the universe of the film but in in in, in, in reality like in, in 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 real life if you were to say to someone named christmas just before you have sex or just after you had sex i thought christmas only came once a year 
that would fundamentally destroy their <laughs> image of you as a sexual human being. So like James Bond, again, it's, it's, it's this flimsy facade of, of kind of masculine sexual success, you know, uh, and, and it makes sense that he latches onto that. And onto you know Barry Allen again, like a, a kind of I think I think I think there's a I think there's a Saturday Night Live sketch about um, uh, James Bond getting an STD check, <laughs> just uh, like he has everything, and his STDs have STDs. <laughs> um. I won't derail this 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 podcast episode. Which is not about a James Bond movie with with my long long standing fan theory that James Bond is a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> like he's he's a sweaty, nervous <laughs> person who's never had sex. If you read um, the books, the way they talk about sex doesn't really make anatomical sense. So I feel <laughs> I feel like you're onto something with that theory. And it is worth noting that Christopher Nolan's Bond movies, which are basically Batman movies, are canonically virgin. virgin. Like Chris, Christian Bale's Batman is a virgin until he's not, and then things go terribly. Yeah, until things go terribly wrong. Um, yeah. But but even before this stuff with Jennifer Garner, there's there's a great kind of moment which points to the 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 contrast between this kind of sexy construct Frank has and then the the reality. The series, he has yeah. the necklace okay. gambit. That his dad always uses, yeah. And he pulls that on the stewardess and gets to have kind of great movie sex with her, you know? And again, it's like, it's off camera. It's kind of the screaming of yes, 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 and all that. And it's all the the rocking of the, yeah. Glamorous movie fun. Food waves. And and then afterwards, he's like, gee whiz, that was the best. Not not, not after Luke, during. She actually says, why did you stop? She says, why did you stop? The idea is that that he has he has come real quick, <laughs> like the way a child having sex for the first time would, right? Well, yeah, exactly. So, whatever the presentation and whatever the the preamble, uh, uh, however glamorous and kind of romanticized it is, the reality is this is a, a child uh, having bad sex. And being very naive uh, about it. A lot of the problems I had with this film are similar to when I watch Big, where it's just like you cannot right. see the fact that this is a teenager. It's ugh. that's why Tom Hanks is so worried about because he's lived he's through it. Yeah. I know where he's this lived goes. Through this experience. Um, just very quickly, then before we move on to talk about Hanks, um, we talked a lot about the kind of serious, weighty themes of the movie. But I think that one of the reasons why it works so well, it's been described as. Spielberg coming very close to making a Martin Scorsese movie and not just because it stars Leonardo DiCaprio but because of all the themes that we've talked about because they are quite heavy they are quite sort of like profound they are quite cynical but I think that what's really beautiful about the film is that it's still a Spielberg film like and Martin Sheen Martin and, and, Sheen and it has well. Martin Sheen as well um but it's it's very much despite all these kind of cynical themes and we kind of looked at them and kind of interrogated them it's still a great deal of fun it still has that weird Spielbergian enthusiasm right so it's very clear that like while what Frank's doing is you know not necessarily the healthiest of things for somebody to do that's only going to end in tears later the movie is very clear that it is a lot of fun that sequence with Jennifer Garner for example is cross-cut with sequences of Hanratty getting his laundry done and it's very clear watching it which of the two that you're meant to be rooting for the noise. Yeah. and again it's it's a great contrast between the 
the image of a of an agent, yes. you know, a James Bond type with what, what an actual government agent is up yeah. to. And I mean, even even then, like you have, you joked about the, the movie sex and how that's shown is, as Andrew described, the, the food waste, the sequence where they're knocking boots at, I imagine quite literally, that's what causes that reaction, but which causes the, the plates to fall off the tray. And it's very exciting, very interesting. But that's like very literally juxtaposed with the sequence earlier where he's typing away on the typewriter making fake checks and you have the shot of the flower vase rocking back and forth and there's something kind of and again this is the thing where it's, it's so again Spielbergian to use that cliche but that sense of childish wonder where it's like this is a world that and again it gets past that creepiness that Jess alluded to which is definitely there by being so, almost so pure that wow having sex is almost as much fun as check fraud because um, there's kind of like this big eye kind of doe eye kind of childish innocence to all this this kind of gee whiz isn't this great fun that we're having which kind of manages to get allow a lot of the kind of more subtle, darker stuff to kind of slip under the radar, I think. Which is kind of something that I think only Spielberg could have made this film, as much as it was bandied around other directors. Well, sex is great fun, though, <laughs> also, like, in fairness. But is it as much fun as check fraud, Andrew? That's the question. But no, no, like it is. It's very... <laughs> I, that is that is a good question. Um, but no, I, like it very much has that sense of whimsical adventure to it that kind of carries it through. And we're going to talk about Hanks in a moment because, uh, I mean, you guys were following this up from your discussion of Tom Hanks in uh, that Dungeons and Dragons movie. But very quickly, DiCaprio and DiCaprio's casting here because um, it's kind of interesting. DiCaprio had come off... This was basically after Titanic. And after Titanic, DiCaprio kind of struggled to find a good niche for himself. He struggled to find out kind of where he could be taken seriously as an actor. And this ends up being, I would argue, probably the first truly great Leonardo DiCaprio role post What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Um, because it's very much one that relies on DiCaprio understanding his movie star persona. Obviously, he'd done Gangs with Gangs of New York with Scorsese a little while beforehand, but that's a movie where the two of them don't really fit together. Like, there's a sense that Scorsese's making a different movie um, than DiCaprio starring in. But I think that with this movie, Catch If You Can relies on that kind of DiCaprio's ability to do, A, appear incredibly young uh, while being a fully grown-ass man, uh, but also captures that sense of DiCaprio as somebody who is incredibly anxious about how he's seen and how he's perceived. Because that's a huge part of kind of DiCaprio's public persona. That pursuit of the Oscar is the most obvious one where it's like, take me seriously as an actor. I'm not just a heartthrob. I'm a performer. And that kind of sense of DiCaprio being kind of caught in a, in a media circus, the infamous kind of pussy posse of the 90s, for example, but even coming out of Titanic where he was stalked by paparazzi around the clock, this sense of kind of like, it, it feels very much like a role that is tailored to DiCaprio's strength as, as an actor, as much as the film is tailored to Spielberg's strengths as a storyteller, I think. He always looked like a young person who who became an, an older person. Like, you'll, you'll always see kind of... Um, He's a Benjamin Button. Yeah, the, the, um, like, like, you know when, when you look at somebody's face and they kind of have the the young version of them there there's some kind of like kind of vestiges of yeah music. in 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 his face but not not in a way yeah. like he he's i don't think his face is going to kind of mature like yeah. robert redford it looks like has, somebody ran you know. leonardo DiCaprio's face from titanic through an iphone app that's basically what we have yeah 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 Exactly, like like the um, 
I, I would believe that, um, like, the CGI budget on, like, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was aging Leonardo DiCaprio. But I, I think with DiCaprio, like, at this time in particular, he was really trying to kind of push himself and kind of recreate himself as a serious uh, actor, you know, because this would have been around the time he was doing stuff like The Beach and The Gangs of New York and whatever the qualities of the films. It's very much him at that time trying to show that he's that he's you know capitalized serious and obviously in the period that he had after this film you had him as the kind of the oscar chaser and he was doing that kind of thing a lot um but i think this is such a good performance from him because i think it taps into stuff that as you say with like his kind of arrested adolescent kind of pussy posse phase which has never really ended because <laughs> you can his girlfriend to... will be 25 soon yeah and she'll be out the door hey now now he did apparently spend months chasing rihanna don't forget that how old was she at the time that's a fair point sorry continue he is notable as one of the few male celebrities who's dating uh women in their 20s like i don't think any other man of his age does this <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, no they u- they're um, usually dating women significantly younger, but like I've never seen anything like it. If you've seen the bar chart, like it's the graph, yeah, it levels off like at 25. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. like, no, no, it's that's true. incredible. But it, men, 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 like, like the these, these kind of Hollywood celebrities who date age appropriately are 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 are, are, are the kind of outliers, like the Tom Hanks's. Um, I think, of our I think, world. um. Yeah, and um, I think Keanu Reeves as well. Um, but uh, any anyway, well, yeah, yeah. With, um, with 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 DiCaprio, like I think he can do a serious performance well enough. But I think the majority of those roles are, are very uh, emotionally flat and kind of unsatisfying and, and unexplored to me, anyway. And I think that performances that he has with a little more kind of uh, joy to them or, or a little more showmanship really kind of show his, his strength as, as an actor to me a lot more. Um, I mean, if you, if you ask people about, because his career has gone on so long now, I think if you ask people now about the roles that they associate him with, I think they're a lot more likely to go for something like The Wolf of Wall Street and the kind of the joy de vivre, however hollow or, or, or however kind of uh, futile it is there, than with something like The Revenant, which is a slog of a performance that I think he would hold in much higher regard. And at this point in time, again, at, when these films were coming out, you know, I think Gangs of New York was like Leonardo DiCaprio's big... Serious. I know, like with Titanic, it was obviously there, but like... Yeah. That's a very much, this is him doing a leading man role, something like Guys in York. And yet yeah. I would argue that this has held up a lot better than that has, because he's having more fun with yeah. it. And I mean, it, it's notable that, again, I would argue that like Gangs of New York, despite being the first Scorsese-DiCaprio team-up, is very much the outlier. After this, Scorsese figures out how to use him. So you start seeing in stuff like The Aviator, which is very much kind of more in this line of stuff, where there's a real intense kind of like, take me seriously as a young person who has more money than God, but absolutely no sense of how to apply it properly, um, which is very much kind of built on, on this performance here. And I, I kind of think, I think that's... Fantastic. I think this is very much like a definitive DiCaprio performance, I would argue. 
Um, do you want to talk about Tom Hanks then, actually, very quickly? Because um, I know you guys kind of went deep on, on Hanks as well. Fun fact, Andrew was kind of wondering about, you know, this idea of Han Ratty as a less cool dad. Do we know who was originally cast in the Han Ratty role when Gore Verbinski was planning to direct this movie? It would have been a very different... It was James film. Gandolfini. It was James Gandolfini. Um, uh, but because they couldn't get production set up quickly enough, Gandolfini had to go back to doing The Sopranos. Oh. Yeah, imagine this movie... Oh my goodness. Different very different. That would be very scary. I can buy him as a divorced dad, though, much more than I can buy Tom Hanks' Hanratty as a divorced dad. But you have, yeah, so it was really going to be James Gandolfini. Was there a lot of him breathing heavily on the phone? <laughs> During the pho- those phone calls, those Christmas phone calls are a lot creepier now. Uh, but it is worth noting, Hanks, Hanks famously yeah. invited himself onto the project in the most Hanksian way imaginable. He got a copy of the script, um, and I think according to The Men Who Would Be King, the DreamWorks book, I think Luke gave me a copy for Christmas. But according to that, he was reading the, the, the script on his yacht, which is apparently where Tom Hanks likes to read all of his scripts. Uh, but he read the script on the yacht and was like, I have to be in this movie. So he rang up his old buddy, um, Steven Spielberg. He's like, can I be in your movie? And Spielberg's like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be Leonardo DiCaprio's big kind of deal. And, and Hanks is like, okay, I, I can respect that. So Hanks apparently writes Leo this really lovely letter, which is like, look... On a typewriter. Presumably on his own typewriter. And he's like, look, I know this is a big deal for you. I know this is going to be your big film. You're going to knock everybody's socks off. You're going to show them how great you are. I love the script. I love your work. I would love to be a part in this movie. And I absolutely promise I will not overshadow you. This will be your show. I'm just be happy to play supporting act in it. And apparently, yes, everybody was like, okay, Tom, you can join the movie. Uh, which is possibly the most Tom Hanks story ever. I bet Tom Hanks' yacht is 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 a, is is a small modest yacht. Um, <laughs> in, uh, in comparison to to DiCaprio, he, he, uh, DiCaprio uses like private jets and large kind of. The Wolf of Wall uh, Street was shot on DiCaprio. Sales it with models. Yeah, The Wolf of Wall Street's a documentary. All of this kind of like environmental activism at the same time. Anyway, sorry. Um, uh, Tom Hanks. Um, uh, I think one of the... uh, It's interesting you say that, Darren, because one of the things that we mentioned was I think other actors play really well against Tom Hanks. I think he creates a kind of environment and a kind of relationship a kind of intimacy that people are able to lean into in a very easy way he kind of invites people to bounce off of him and i think that's why spielberg likes him so much is he is america's dad and everybody wants him including spielberg wants him to be his dad and he he just creates that kind of situation and ecosystem yeah and this is very much like a very responsible kind of dad role because hanratty is and this is probably around the same time as Road to Perdition, actually, the Sam Mendes movie. And that's probably the most unlikable Tom Hanks has been at this stage of his career. This is probably the closest Tom Hanks has allowed himself to being a bad guy, I think, which is kind of interesting. I think it's interesting that he's not supposed to be funny. And I think only Tom Hanks could have really done it because I think in order to play the straight man, he had to have an understanding of the comedy of it. And I really love the the two times he uses his little joke. Knock, knock. <laughs> um, the, sec- the second time it gets cut off, and I, I think that was a really kind of fun moment, is he, he just does not want to engage with people in this way, and it, it's really interesting, because he is so funny. I love, I loved in that scene how his 
His little helpers are eating chalk ices. <laughs> well, he did say he'd buy them a good luck bar. He did say he'd buy them a good luck bar if they behave themselves. So he does. Again, he's quite literally America's dad. He takes the kids to work. He tells them to be quiet while he goes about his business. And then he keeps his promise to buy them a chalk ice afterwards. Um. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, uh, if you take... If, if, if you be sure to take the notes about everything that lady says, then you can have some of her Sara Lee cheesecake. Uh, it's it's great because like his performance as Hanardy works so well because, again, like Hanks is so... It's so comfortable in, in the kind of... The, the roles that he plays over and over again. And uh, Hanks might not be an actor who ever challenges himself by doing anything radically different but i think he's so comfortable. except for cloud atlas the masterpiece that is cloud atlas obviously from cloud atlas yes but um it it, it really fits hanratty who's so utterly unconcerned with kind of what people think about him um it it it, it, it works really well like when when he's in the car with the two other agents uh, and he does the the hilarious joke uh yeah like you can see that the other two characters uh initially resent him because he doesn't uh immediately kind of fall into the kind of unspoken social pact of, of what they're what they're look, like looking for you know they, they they want him to be one of the boys they want to be bosom buddies yeah <laughs> In so many ways. Except your, <laughs> except your man, your 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 man was reaching for his gun and nearly shot his tits off. Isn't isn't that what he says? Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Her, Symbolism, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. yeah. he, he he kind of he bristles against against Hanratty and kind of challenges him because Hanratty doesn't laugh at his joke. You know what I mean? And like yeah. everyone finds that hilarious, and it it is something that again makes you kind of feel on the spot and vulnerable and kind of pokes at your facade of it if you've got this this kind of joke that nobody laughs at it. And again, that he they put try to put Hanks on the spot and try to get him to tell a joke. And he doesn't care at all and he's got his kind of knock knock go knock knock. Himself. And again it 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 establishes him in a kind of a position of power over them, like in terms of the dynamics of the scene. It kind of makes him uh again like a it, it kind of shows that he's more capable than he lets on uh, and also the joke is hilarious <laughs> so he doesn't have to fit into their uh, social mores or social demands and yet still comes out on top and it, it, there are ways in which Hanratty's success comes from that same kind of uh, removal from kind of expectations or, 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 or again image like he is still pursuing this case long past the point where the FBI see it as pertinent for them to solve it uh, he still and also what it means for his career. Well, yeah, like past the point where it could be a success for him, or past the point where he's humiliated uh, after that brilliant scene where Leonardo DiCaprio um, makes him think that he's a uh, Barry agent Allen, as well. the Secret Service agent. Yeah, yeah. And I think some of the most kind of electric film, and to your point, Jess, they really show Hanks playing brilliantly off of another actor, or when he is on the phone to. Um, to, to DiCaprio at Christmas and it's a real kind of cat and mouse thing and Frank really thinks that he's playing with this 
this FBI guy and that he's in the position of power. And Hanratty has this like eureka moment about who he's dealing with and what he's going after. Devastated me. Bursts into laughter because he's like, you've got no one else to call. And therefore... I have the power in the situation. Horrible. Like, That's then, his moment as a villain. And then responds by turning up the volume on the radio and singing along joyfully, which is like the most Tom yeah, Hanksian yeah. villain you can imagine. He's also probably working on a typewriter and chuckling to himself as he does. Like Ro- <laughs> he he he's never as much of a villain in Road to Perdition as as he is <laughs> when in, he fl- in when he flat out murders in that people moment yeah. on the phone. Yeah. yeah, and he's like, he's stuffing his face as well. He's like, like laughing kind of um, down down the phone like a monster. That stupid kid, um, stupid yeah. lonely kid at Christmas. What a loser. Yeah. If only he could be cool exactly. like me. Um, I do like, by the way, and again, he, he, like Luke says that about like Hanratty not caring what other people think about him. That conversation, though, the power dynamic begins with the whole I wanted to call to say I'm sorry. And Hanratty refusing to accept that. Hanratty saying, no, you don't say you're sorry. You don't get to say you're sorry to me. As if to say, no, you don't get to pretend that I'm worthy of your pity. I don't, I'm not pitiable. That's not who I am. Um, so I think that even then you do have the sense of Hanratty tied up in how he's seen and how he's perceived, I think, to a certain extent. Even though he may hide it better, or even though he might make a show of being less concerned about it than other people are, perhaps. Or it's just more mature. It's coming from a more mature point than DiCaprio's. Well, it's as what you kind of eventually see, or what he eventually reveals, is that like he is divorced. He has no real relationships. He has really nothing to lose. <laughs> you know, and so he kind of latches on to this pursuit of of, of DiCaprio. It's like I don't know. I for me it was just he has this sense of what's right and how you're allowed to behave and what you're allowed to do and i think that's why he's in the film at least so invested in getting frank into the fbi is he doesn't really think it's right for this child to be in kind of solitary confinement for the rest of his life yeah now there is a real sense of him being again a father he's not so much a law enforcement figure he's not a cop he's not a narc He's a father. He's the guy who's going to chase you down and make sure you do your homework. And it's for your own good, I'm really. I'm disappointed. I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. Yeah, yeah. He, he never really seems like he's angry. He's just constantly let down. And like, I mean, even even that sequence where Frank gets arrested, he's on the back of the car saying, like, don't worry, Frank, I'll have you extradited back to the state in no time. It's like, great, you're going to go to an American prison because I care about you. Yeah, and he's, he's also kind of like, um, I have to do this. This is my job. Is like I'm going to spank you, but uh, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, kind of <laughs> uh, thing. Do it. But yeah, there there is something kind of interesting in that in that idea that you know the Hanratty character is basically just letting you know sort of Frank get out all of his kind of childish stupidness and protecting him from himself, basically in a way that Frank Senior can't do. Yeah, he's kind of letting it play out like it. He is not, Frank is not going to be able to just continue this indefinitely. And he also can't just walk away from it. You know, he does say, can we just stop? Can you just stop chasing me and let's just call it quits? And no, that's not how it works. I mean, he's, it's billions of fraud. Like you can't just walk away from it. Yeah. 
And I think that it's interesting in this kind of world of building lies and building upon your lies. And like Luke was saying earlier, if you can't get to the next lie, you just abandon this lie and kind of move on. You can't. You can't do that indefinitely. And and in some ways that feels like almost the perfect kind of Hanks movie. It's like, you know, he, he will be stern. He will be old fashioned. He will enjoy using a typewriter. He may not be cool but he has your best interests at heart. Because again, it, it's very much like there's a sense that Frank is going to run out. The ground is shrinking out from under him. I think Hanratty says at one point, and he also says, you know, you are going to get caught. That's a mathematical certainty. The sense in which Hanratty, and again, you have that very literally with the French. You see it with the French. It's like if Hanratty doesn't catch Frank, somebody else will and somebody else will not take care of frank the way that hanratty will they will throw him in a dungeon they will let him get tb or lice oh the real frank abignell is 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 the is the big kind of um detective French luke kind of uh chief of police yeah 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 who who bundles him into the car um as well it's quite literally for his own um, good yeah sorting himself out as it were which is what Hanratty does. He helps him sort himself out. But yeah, kind of, and again, that feels very much like, again, Spielberg and, and kind of Hanks as these, you know, middle-aged men who kind of came of age in the, you know, in the 60s and 70s saying, ah, this stuff will sort itself out eventually. Kind of like the, the comfort of kind of getting older and kind of like looking down and saying, hey, those kids, sure, they may be causing trouble now. They might be, was it high on dope and throwing rocks at police, but it'll all work itself out nicely in the end. Um, and thank God it did. <laughs> yeah, nothing bad happened after this. That as well was part of the FBI's kind of chokehold on early Hollywood is you couldn't commit a crime and not have it end in this way and in bars or death. It, you know, it's not necessarily always true that it's a mathematical certainty you absolutely will get caught. That's just not true. And we see that from the fact that, you know, Hanks's character wants Frank because there are things that he can't catch because not in the mind of the criminal and in these kind of emerging technologies and that kind of thing. So he, it's not a mathematical certainty if there's things that he won't catch, like the Flash. He didn't know who Barry Allen was, you know, and even with emerging technologies, there's things he wouldn't know to look for. All right. I think that maybe about wraps it up in terms of talking about Catch Me If You Can. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already? I like that it was, he's kind of... Um, Frank um, becomes suspicious when he's looking around the Miami airport and sees men in fedoras. <laughs> like hidden fedoras. It's like men in fedoras <laughs> in the 60s. Um, in Miami, <laughs> I suspect, is probably the big clue there, yeah. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's a different kind of a choice of... of 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 headwear um, that 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 you'd expect to see from non um, uh, G men, I guess. Um, I like that, and it, it's his obsession with image. It's automatically they're not going to know to take that up because you are what you look like. Well, he literally puts a hat on another man, and that's how he gets away. <laughs> <laughs> Hats are very important here, Andrew. I think is what we're getting at. And again, it is a '60s movie, yeah. so it was before the bottom fell out of the hat uh, sales market. And it's the 60s movie, so there's a lot of smoking. Yes. And he keeps telling his mom to stop. Um, yeah. Um, so the, the, um, 
inappropriate. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and we'll actually say just Spielberg's direction, actually, which I, I really like, and I really like watching the film. It's very energetic. It's very enthusiastic. It's, again, Spielberg directing like a much younger man would. Um, those sequences where the camera kind of pushes and follows. And it, again, Spielberg wonders, but they're kind of short and they're non-intrusive. So you have three-minute sequences that are done in long takes or sequences where, like, Hanratty's on the phone, as um as sort of Frank is walking through the airport with the bevy of stewardesses and you have the camera kind of moving round to follow Frank in the background while Hanratty's completely oblivious to what's actually going on. Or even that sequence in the hall with the two feet meeting one another or kind of the chasing each other around the print room. It's a gorgeous film to, to look at. I, I really think it's, it's a fantastically produced, fantastically designed film. It's it's absolutely gorgeous to look at and listen to as well as everything else we've talked about. Um, I'd really agree with you on that, Darren, because I think a big part of Spielberg's technical brilliance is how the camera is moved you have those kind of slow dolly movements that even if it's not a big moment like when tom hanks is in the the phone booth and the way that the camera kind of moves towards him and it's so gentle and gradual yeah is it's interesting how he balances kind of slow gentle camera movements with a pacing that feels fast it's not like michael bay where the actual camera movements are fast and you get kind of it's disorienting yeah, I mean, I think it's Gilmero del Toro has described this as his favorite Spielberg film um, of the later stage of his career. And he's talked about it as like ballet, just watching the camera and the actors interact with one another and the way in which Spielberg uses the movement of the actors in his shot with the movement of the camera uh, in ways that are kind of subtle and understated, but also very effective. Like I think of that sequence in the printing press, for example, where, you know, Hanratty takes a step towards Frank. And the camera follows him and then tilts into a Dutch angle to throw you off, which is kind of, again, it's a wonderfully subtle touch. There's sequences of like when he's chasing up to the family house. Again, it fantastically, incredibly fast moving film. For a film that is two hours and 20 minutes long, it just goes. It, it's amazing. And he, do, he does all the things like where, you know, where where Frank Jr. sees the, the pilot for the first time and he's literally like basked in golden light or just the... The, the things that we see Frank see, like when you see the family through the window and you have that's you have a fundamental kind of moment of Frank Jr. understanding the, the reality of the situation. Uh, I think Spielberg is he's I think very much a visual literalist. <laughs> you use the word subtle there, Darren, which I, I wouldn't ever use in anything Spielberg has shot ever, but it's undeniably effective. I think maybe that visual literalism is why Christmas maybe appeals to him so much. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you have that really early scene where um, Christopher Walken and um, his wife are dancing and you have, they've spilt red wine <laughs> on, on a cream carpet on the floor and they're just trampling uh, into the floor. And it's, over it, it's dancing yeah, and the camera the kind of hovers on it. And it's, it's really interesting. It's like, Walken does not deal with any problems whatsoever. It's just on to the next thing, move on to the next thing. I thought that was really interesting. Stain on their house as a result. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, no, it's really, really well constructed. And again, even the even the montages as well. I do love a good montage, and this has several of them. I'm a big fan of like particularly con movies where they show you how the con works, so you get to see somebody actually putting the work in and then the con executing. The sequence where he learns to forge checks using the Pan Am airplanes, for example, which is just, again, really good, really effective visual storytelling, where you go from the yeah. single... By the way, he 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 didn't need to to construct the, the whole um, uh, 
models. <laughs> it was like a thing where, like, he, ha- he, he ha- it's better in a movie yeah. to have like a bath full of these um, kind of model airplanes. But if you just wanted the decal, you wouldn't build the entire. <laughs> 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 the child. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. the most fun. We were part right in the hotel room. Like... <laughs> I do. I love though. I love Darren how it's that kind of process is so similar to how you were saying they animated the opening sequence. I think that's really lovely, and the fact that they hadn't seen it, it's it's really interesting. Um, and again, I love the idea that it scales upwards as well, where you get that. It's again so visually literate or so visually literal where you have like you have a single plane in the bathtub and then you have like 30 planes in the bathtub and it's like okay fine I, I get where this is going now uh, but yeah so I think that about wraps it up so what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something they're enjoying it's gonna be a TV show it could be a film it could be something related to this it could be something unrelated to this it could be just something you're enjoying at the moment whatever it may be so to give Luke and Jess a chance to think about this I'm gonna ask Andrew to go first um, I said earlier that I had read the uh, the book um, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's a good, it's a great kind of um, adventure story, I suppose, about um, about a young person. It includes a lot of um, kind of uh, uh, scams and grifts as well that 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 you don't see in a movie. Like like I think his, his, one of the very first things he did was he just went into a bank, took like the big stack of um, uh, the deposit slips. And wrote his um, his account number of a bank that he uh, of an account that he had just set up on each deposit slip. Now, back in those days, people didn't write their account numbers on the deposit slips. There was there was there was a place to put it, but people wouldn't fill that in. They would just fill in their name. But the uh, computer that read these would read the um, would read the account number first. So if you put an account number in, it would read that, it would, and it wouldn't. So it just it, it, and everybody who put money into that bank that that week was paying him money. Um, so um, and it has all those sorts of um, uh, details in it. Uh, there's also a good Google talk um, on that you'll find on YouTube um, with uh, Frank Abagnale speaking for. Um, I think it's like uh, almost as long as this podcast or almost as long as the movie, but it really flies by. Um, and he, he's, he's very um, charismatic. Um, another book that I recommend is something that I'm listening to at the moment on audiobook. Um, is, uh, it's a book called uh, Kickback uh, by uh, David Montero. And it's a kind of a look at the whole um, world of global corporate bribery. And this is a movie about kind of um, a, a con man and of, of, of deception. And I suppose we spoke earlier about the kind of the uh, romance of, of, of these sorts of stories. But there's a very kind of an unromantic um, uh, story as well about how, um, uh, you know, um, financial crime is done on a, on a very large scale by very powerful um, companies and people like you have stuff that did and, and it reads like a thriller as well it reads like something like catch me if you can it's it, it, it covers all sorts of things like the um, the Iraq uh, oil for food program and some of the drugs companies kind of bribery schemes and all of that sort of thing um, and it's available in an audiobook. You can get that um, at the moment. Like, if you don't want to buy it, you can get it on uh, Borrowbox, um, where you can 
join your local library online and, and listen to it that way. That's how I'm doing it. Um, so yeah, check that out. Uh, those would be my recommendations. I'll be sure to uh, check in on that. Eh? Hey, eh? I, I did yeah. like, by the way, at the end of the Thank movie, you. how his door now just reads check fraud. Um, <laughs> you know, like it's not uh, Frank Connor's MD. It's like, I am a check fraud. <laughs> Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, his name does appear at the bottom of the door, but yes, on the big glass door, it's checked. Yeah, out. yeah. Um, all right then. And Jess, do you have anything you'd recommend for this? Yeah, case? so I recently saw the film um, Orca. It stars Richard Harris, who I would be familiar with as Dumbledore. Um, it's it's just bonkers. It's supposed to be like Jaws, but with a killer whale. But it just is, it's just crazy from start to finish. Every single minute in it is just a riot. It's amazing. It's it's a it's whale so, of a time. It is a whale of a time. Well, interestingly, because I was kind of, while I was watching it, I was like, how are they doing this? And they actually trained, they had trained whales. They borrowed whales and used them in some of these scenes. So they're just doing crazy stuff. And um, they also used... Um, you know kind of animatronics like jaws did but it just it's oh it's crazy you have to watch it i think everyone oh it's just it's incredible yes i didn't know that it existed until you mentioned it and now it's jumped right to the top of my to watch list actually so yes i'm quite yeah. looking forward to that it's better than free willy it, it's better it's the it's one of the best films i've ever seen it's gone straight into my top kind of 250 i had heard about it and um, we recently watched Blackfish and it, it just kind of mentioned in passing but there's this great scene from it where um Richard Harris is screaming at the whale and he's like what are you <laughs> we just had to see it then but um yeah it's crazy and he's got really it's really emotional it's kind of it's very much on the whale's side which I think is really interesting it's one of those monster films where it's very much on side with with the villain so it's strange Finally, a film from the world. All right, then. And Luke, yourself, anything you'd recommend? Well, Darren, if you enjoy discussions about Tom Hanks or stories about people who create elaborate delusions based off of familial trauma, then you must listen to the Breakout Role podcast's episode about Tom Hanks and his breakout role in Mazes and Monsters. Hashtag. Would you recommend Mazes and Monsters itself? I would recommend that you listen to us talk about it. Available now on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, <laughs> and wherever good movie podcasts are found. <laughs> Darren, people only know what you tell them. I am telling you that you must listen to our latest episode. <laughs> I would, I would recommend you watch it because it has to be seen to be believed. It's it's just it's crazy. It's a it's a crazy film. Never seen Tom Hanks murder anyone so casually. Luke, Luke, Luke the listeners can't hear you. It's, sorry, the listeners can hear you. The listeners can't see you. You're wearing a pilot hat, and I just implicitly trust you. <laughs> um. <laughs> Never say die, eh? That's my attitude. <laughs> Please tell me he makes die-related puns. Because, I mean, come on, if it's a murder movie about Dungeons and Dragons, there have to he be doesn't dialogue. know. Maybe he's... if you wrote it, Darren. Darren, you're presuming Fine. a familiarity with Dungeons and Dragons that the movie Mazes and Monsters does not have. 
Okay, fine. Fair. <laughs> uh, very quickly in terms of recommendations from myself, uh, three-prong one. Because this is a great movie starring Tom Hanks, I'm going to recommend another great movie starring Tom Hanks. That is Cloud Atlas, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, because this is a movie about con artists and hucksters, I'm going to recommend something else I enjoyed recently about con artists and hucksters, which is the fifth season of Better Call Saul, which is outstanding. Um, just wrapped up relatively recently as we're recording. Uh, it is available on Netflix. Um, I really liked it. I think it has maybe surpassed its parent show at this point in time. Um, and does something very interesting in terms of deconstructing the anti-hero. It feels very much like a coda to kind of that 2000s anti-hero boom that we had. A very much kind of like an epilogue to it. Um, and then finally, uh, what I would recommend is airing on Sky Comedy here in the UK or HBO in the US. Uh, tapping into that sense that Luke kind of alluded to of Catch Me If You Can's We're Millennials, We're Screwed. Nothing we do is ever going to matter. We're never going to accomplish anything. So you might as well just run away from it as quickly as possible. Um, the TV show Run, uh, which is overseen or executive produced by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, starring Donald Gleeson, uh, being very Donald Gleeson, which is to say handsome, charming, but also incredibly and uncannily creepy at the same time. Starring him as basically a lifestyle coach who decides to blow up his life and go on the run with a college ex-girlfriend who decides to abandon her family and embark on an adventure that will take them across the country with no repercussions whatsoever. I really enjoyed it. It's kind of a, it's a comedy, drama, kind of vaguely action-y show. I would wholeheartedly recommend it as well, worth seeking out. All right, then. I was going to ask you guys to plug what you're doing at the moment. So if people are looking for something online, uh, where can they find <laughs> Jess and Luke? Where can, so Jess, where can they find you online? Um, So I'm on Twitter. Uh, uh, hang on, I should check. Tada, Jess. Yeah, but is there an underscore? Yes. Yeah. At Tara underscore Jess. I also uh, write for Film in Dublin, which is yeah, filmindublin.com. Filmindublin.ie. Filmindublin.ie. That's where you can find both of us. Jess, it's very important to know. You've got to learn anything about this movie and, and the importance of image. Dublin. Dublin. <laughs> branding. And myself. Is is Jess not the branding chief of Film in Dublin, right? Yeah. Like your specific brief in Film in Dublin is marketing, right? You you keep pushing the lie down until you make it true. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can also find me on Twitter at Mr. Cynical. That's cynical with an I, and you can find Jessica and myself discussing the first leading roles of Hollywood icons on the Breakout Role podcast on all those platforms I mentioned previously. Perfect. Uh, I'm going to include the links to those in the show notes. Right, we are wrapping up kind of our world tour. We're jumping into a season of American classics. In the coming weeks, we'll be discussing movies like 12 Angry Men with the wonderful Donald Clark and John McGuire. We'll be discussing things like White Heat. With, more, uh, yeah. more, more special episodes. <laughs> Think of them as variations. <laughs> very, very special seasons. Variations on a theme. We'll be doing White Heat with the wonderful Carl from the Movie Palace as well. And we'll hopefully be doing Sunset Boulevard with Charlene Lydon and Rena McGregor as well with a bit of luck. But next week, uh, we're kind of kicking off that season of American Classics. The wonderful Kurt North will be joining us to discuss Peter Weir's 1998 classic, The Truman Show. Until then, take it easy, guys. Bye. 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 Hey, guys. Thank you very much, both. <laughs>